VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, November the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program on this Come On With It edition. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So you heard Brian Medora mention this, and it's the annual debate about the merit or the requirement for daylight saving time. It took me years to stop saying daylight savings time, to be honest with you. First proposed in 1895 by a fellow uh, Kiwi from New Zealand, entomologist George Hudson. The rationale? He proposed a change because it would allow him more daylight hours to find and inspect insects. And then there was, of course, the reference to agricultural impacts with the way we change the clocks, spring forward, fall back. So here it comes. November 5th plunges us into darker days for the next four months. Not every Canadian is on daylight saving time. So the Yukon, most of Saskatchewan, parts of B.C. and Quebec, they stay on standard time year-round. There's been a long-running debate. There's been legislation tabled in many provinces. The Time Amendment Act in 2020 in Ontario, they need New York and Quebec to get on board because of the trade-related matters. B.C. passed legislation similar to that back in 2019. That's been delayed because you need California to be the state to pull the trigger so that part of the, that part of the continent can do away with this nonsense. Alberta had a referendum on the same idea in 2021. So... I mean, the impacts are real. Brian played a clip from a doctor talking about impacts on our health, productivity. It's undeniable that it's got some sort of bizarre impact on people, whether it be with the number of uh, motor vehicle accidents, whether it be with the number of heart attacks. And yes, it interrupts your circadian sleeping patterns. Yes, it does interrupt productivity, which we're all apparently, we're supposed to be, more productive after work. But of course, when you hop in your rig and it's pitch black, then it kind of takes away some of that impetus. So back in 1895, the daylight hours required to find and inspect insects, agricultural issues, hardly seems and feels like legitimate reasons or rationale as to why like daylight saving time is still a thing. Anyway, they fall back over the weekend. Team Goodshoe up in Kelowna at the Pan-Continental Curling, I'll say that he's disgruntled. He's taken a few knocks for the way he's talking about the World uh, Curling Federation and the preparedness for this event and others in the past. But he's not saying anything that any, uh, pardon me, other curling veterans would say. The facility is cramped. There's nowhere to warm up. They're sharing dressing rooms. Can't watch other teams practice. It just seems a little bit strange. And so Guju said, look, I'm old enough. I've been around long enough. I don't really care. <laughs> Fair enough. Yesterday they beat Guyana 11-1, to and today they face the United States in the semifinal. Okay, let's keep going. So, again, you'll always hear the hockey scores and updates on our locals playing in the National Hockey League. And there's a few fun relations out there that we can talk about. No hook got an assist last night. Good. He looks pretty good out there. Dawson Mercer. I'm cheering for him hard. Sending all the positive vibes his way. 17 goals scored in his rookie season. Scored 27 last year in nine games so far this regular season. Zero goals, zero assists for zero points. So, not sure exactly what's going on with Dawson, but he's having a mighty struggle at this point. And I see a couple of NHLers actually wearing uh, neck guards. As a result, of course, of the tragedy in England where a kid got his neck slashed and consequently died. Unbelievable. T.J. Oshie, one of the stars for the Caps, Washington Capitals last night, had his on. Okay, a couple of quick ones. Uh, in, in sports, a couple of... When I see the legends and a notable opportunity to talk about them and some of their achievements over the years, 
This date, 1987, New York Ranger Center, Marcel Dion became just the second NHL player to register 1,700 career points. Scored a goal that night, finished his career with 1,771, sixth all-time. When conversations about the greatest players ever take place at the water cooler, around a few pints or what have you, very seldom does Dion's name come up, but absolutely one of the very best. I guess most of his career played in the obscurity of Los Angeles. Maybe he's part of that reason, but anywho, you want to talk about it. And the Growlers in Trois Rivières for their first road game of the year. Congratulations, good luck to all hands participating in the Central West Senior Hockey League. Hasn't been a game since April. There's been lots of issues with teams not able to field a team, some backdoor deals, but they've got it organized now. It's a four-team league, the new-look Cornerbrook Royals, the Deer Lake Red Wings, Stephenville Lightning, and the Grand Falls Windsor's Cataracts will be participating. Puck drops tonight for the opener of the regular season for the West Coast League. Good on all hands who got it figured out and have a game of senior hockey on the West Coast, so that's a, a good thing. All right, what is this? Okay. Oh, I'm throwing a, a couple of sports legends in there. So we had talked about MVP yesterday, and Corey Seager, the World Series MVP, and I talked about the closest MVP vote of all time in the regular season in the American League. Get a load of this. 1934, New York Yankee first baseman Lou Gehrig won the American League Triple Crown Hit 363, 49 home runs, 165 RBI. But the Philadelphia A's catcher, Mickey Cochran, who hit 320 with two home runs and 76 RBI, was the MVP. 1942, Boston Red Sox outfielder Ted Williams won the American League Triple Crown. Hit 356 with 36 home runs, 137 RBI. But New York Yankee second baseman Joe Gordon won the MVP. A couple of interesting ones. Okay, moving on. This story here is larger than just the city of St. John's, but every single day, or it feels like every single day, I get an email that you know full well has all the red flags to know that someone's trying to compromise my personal information. We found out now that it happened on Tuesday, but the revelation was understood yesterday at the city of St. John's that someone posing as an actual employee of the city requested an accounts payable document, and it was shared. So 219 residents of the city that were signed up with the ReConnect system, their information has been shared. Names, account numbers, amounts owing. Now, they can't access their online accounts, but it makes you wonder, who's out there trying to get that information? What a strange thing to be fishing. But I guess the broader conversation is just how unbelievably relentless the scammers are, especially online. I think many people are numb to the landline ringing and knowing that around that corner, is likely someone trying to pull the wool over your eyes? But it happens to me all the time. The emails look so real. Now, sometimes the red flags are really quite clear. When it's an urgent request, you know, or some generic, foolish-sounding kind of greeting, spelling errors and the like. But this happens all the time. It might feel like a bit of an eye-roller to talk about these things, but it is a massive issue. And it's happening not only to individuals and governments and corporations and healthcare systems, we still don't know a whole lot about the details surrounding the uh, cyber attack on our Meditech system. Look what's happening in Ontario. So we're about a couple of weeks into a ransomware attack that happened in that province. Pretty much crippled five hospitals. It was ransomware. They decided not to pay it. Uh, I'm trying to recall. Do we even know if there was ransom uh, requested or demanded here on the Meditech system? We don't know at all, do we? It probably was. The advice, generally speaking, is don't pay it, right? Because how can you trust the criminals on the other end to delete, to delete the information upon their payment. And plus, paying it is really counterintuitive because if people don't pay the ransomware, then at some point, they'll stop. 
Now, some of the information that they gleaned from the uh, Ontario system has been shared on the so-called dark web, and there's lots of it. Let's see, I had the number right in front of me. The stolen data involves 160 gigabytes of 5.6 million records of personally identifiable information, and they're protected health information. So to get down to the brass tacks with how we protect ourselves online, with our own individual responsibility, and yes, when we talk about governments and banks and the like, it's their responsibility because they have a lot of my personal information. You want to take it on? Let's go. Quick sip of coffee, one moment. I want to say good morning to a good friend of the show, up in Labrador, Keith Fitzpatrick. Called yesterday. Keith and I chat uh, sometimes about mental health and addictions issues and access to services. I was really pleased to call yesterday to put this one particular issue back on my radar and now on the front burner. It's back in 2020, in July, there was the establishment of FACT, the Flexible Assertive Community Treatment. So for individuals 18 years of age or older who are experiencing serious mental illness, they can have what they refer to as like a hospital without walls. The concept makes all the sense in the world. So when we talk about the establishment of primary care teams or collaborative care clinics, this is mimicking that in the world of mental health. So it operates 24, or pardon me, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. But what they do, and they talk about it as an assertive outreach approach. So for people struggling, sometimes they don't care about going to their appointment. They don't want to show up. They may cancel. They may have fallen into some sort of spiral. So there's continuous monitoring. And when you sign up for it, you're told what you're getting yourself into. It's not like you get blindsided with people creeping up and knocking on your door or peering in your window. They're doing it so that you can get the help you need on the schedule you need and to be continuously monitored. It sounds like the very best approach inside of mental health. Now, of course, access and wait times and long-time long wait time and you know, access to psychiatrists and access to psychologists, but this really does make a lot of sense. There were seven of these multidisciplinary teams set up in the province. Deer Lake, St. Anthony, Grand Falls, Windsor, Gander, uh, St. John's, Cornerbrook, and Happy Valley Goose Bay. There were supposed to be 200 staffers. Now, apparently, like most everything else in the world of healthcare, there's a staffing shortage, a staffing issue. But we're trying to find out, you know, just how active these FACT teams are, the Flexible Assertive Community Treatment Teams, because it sounds like, and Keith is there to tell us, that it was extremely helpful to him. And I would imagine it's been extremely helpful to many. So inside these seven teams, do they have the staff? Are they at capacity with the patient roster that it was intended to be satisfied? But we're trying to find out. I really appreciate Keith bringing that forward yesterday on the show. Also in the world of outside of what people might refer to as normal mental health support, great to know that the folks at Stable Life who operate Spirit Horse, they've got some funding that's come in the door to allow them to reopen their doors. Of course, pairing people with horses to improve mental health. It might not come across or sound like, well, the be-all and end-all, but it has been important, and it has been beneficial to people. So congratulations to Erin Gallant and her team who repeatedly go through the application process for funding for not-for-profits and for charities and organizations like Stable Life. So they've had some money come in the door, allow them to stay open for maybe six, nine months. Good news. Been a helpful program. I will add to it because I haven't mentioned it in a while, but we're Stella. Again, it might not feel like the be-all and end-all in the world of mental health, but Stella, the mental health support dog that was used by the RNC and Constable Krista Fagan, they were doing good work. It had been really helpful. 
And it wasn't even funded by the government. It wasn't a funding issue. It was all funded privately by Jim Hines. So might not be the number one issue on many people's minds this morning, but I'm throwing it out there. Where's Stella? Okay. For municipalities, had a good conversation with Amy Cody yesterday, the president of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, and through consultations over the years, they've come up with new legislation that governs municipalities called the Towns Local Service Districts Act. Basically, it allows a lot more freedom, notably does away with the poll tax that was still apparently being used in some 40 communities, gives them options with how they tax the residents, gives them options with how they a tax, uh, a pro, pardon me, apply a tax to businesses or tax breaks to lure a business to their community, really a lot of red tape eliminated. Some 11 ministerial approvals have been removed from the current act. So if you're a municipal leader and have already had the opportunity to try to digest the 146-page front and back document, which of course is pretty cumbersome, I had to look at it. In addition to that, and I wish I had asked Minister John Hagee about this yesterday. It seems to be well-received, in the hands and the ears of uh, municipal leaders, but not so much for, uh, by opposition members. It really is important to allow for the required amount of time for opposition parties and their individual members to read, to understand these uh, proposed amendments or new pieces of legislation, because the work that we need to see done on the floor of the House of Assembly cannot simply be about, well, we're in a majority position, here's the legislation, all in favor. We need time. You know, even if there's an opposition member that asks a question that, you know, piques the interest of the majority governing uh, party, and in this case, of course, the liberals. So let's just take our time. Now, not drag our heels, but allow opposition parties the opportunity to have fundamental and fulsome debate, ask the required questions, get all the additional information, not only good for opposition members, good for the government, and that type of extended debate, and it doesn't have to be, again, like weeks and months on end, but for even individual leaders in municipalities. When you hear the questions, it peppers you with more information. When you hear the answers, maybe gives you some further direction how you can approach your colleagues nearby in the region for what might work for them. So whether it be with shared housing coordinators or whatever the case may be, but it looks like really appropriate piece of legislation, but let's give the lawmakers time to do what they need to do. Oh, on that front, speaking of municipal leaders, I want to say congratulations and good morning to the mayor of Dover, Tony Keats. He's one of the finalists for the World's Mayor Prize. Pretty cool stuff. As far as I could tell, there was only, let's see here, there's only like nine finalists, which is a pretty remarkable thing to see a mayor from the town of Dover on that particular list. Oh, I had it right in front of me a second ago. Where is it? Da -da 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 -da. So the uh, finalists were from all around the world. And Mayor Keats from Dover, Newfoundland, Labrador, he's on the list. Congratulations to you, sir. What that means at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure. But Mayor Keats, if you would like to chime in on the new legislation and the World Mayor Prize, we're happy to have you on the show. Today, okay, it's been a long time coming. But back in 2019, legislation that people call Claire's Law was passed, and there's taken, obviously, a lot of time for it to be finalized, and now it comes forward in the form of the Interpersonal Violence Disclosure Protocol Act. We know the law is named after a British lady named Claire Wood, murdered by her ex-partner back in 2009. This will be beneficial. So it gives people an opportunity to get disclosure from the RNC and the RCMP about the potential risk they might be facing, whether or not someone has a criminal past that puts them in peril. 
for assault, domestic violence, whatever the case may be. I'm not entirely sure what some of these things mean. There is no fee. Uh, all, the, all the information is confidential. The person that you're asking about will not be notified, which, of course, could put you in absolutely heightened risk. But here's what it says. To be eligible, applicants must live in the province, be in a current or former intimate partner relationship, and have a reason for requesting the information, such as a concern for safety or well-being. So it's a right-to-know approach, and I think it makes all the sense in the world, but we'll try to figure out, you know, what does that mean to say that I f I'm in fear? I'm worried about my personal safety. Is that all you need to say? Which should be enough, right? should be enough to get the information because we, we have to arm people with the info that might be able to see them avoid being in a potential extremely dangerous relationship. What do you think? All right, talk around a couple of quick ones. Overnight, I'll just say round number 10. 10 emails regarding the pause for World Energy GH2. And what's going to change between now and the resubmission by the proponent? Some people saying, boy, God, you know, can we just get out of our own way? There's a big opportunity here. Contrast that with people saying, I appreciate the pause, but what am I going to be able to get a better understanding on? Will there be another extremely thick, technologically laden document that maybe some people, including me, might not be able to sift through to know if anything's changed in the resubmission and questions asked about, water use, water monitoring, potential and cumulative effect to the project. Some of those things are pretty high-level types of issues, but you want to take it on. We can do it. All right, I had a few more I want to talk about, but let's get to your calls here this morning. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. Oh, here it is. So some of the other finalists for the World Mayor Prize, uh, a town in Austria, Graz, Greifswald, Germany, Bristol in the UK, Kiev in Ukraine, Olivieri in Italy, Kelman in Mozambique, Tremblay en France, and France, Utrecht in the Netherlands, and Dover. Pretty cool. We're taking your emails. It's openlinefeocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Well, early last month, Stable Life had to close their doors. Basically, they ran out of money. It's a non-profit horse therapy program located down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. But luckily and thankfully, this week, they did get some government funding, allowing them to get back to business. Join us on line number two is the program director at, Spirit, at Stable Life Spirit Horse. That's Aaron Gallant. And good morning, Aaron. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this is really good news. I don't know if you heard off the top, but I saw the story. I'm really quite pleased. But before we get into the reinstatement of some uh, core funding, what exactly do you do? So we provide free mental health services um, using horses as the therapeutic tool, I guess you would say, um, to help people on their journey. We have um, a professional counselor on staff as well as uh, certified peer supporters, and uh, we use kind of a, the horse as a tool that helps people um, reflect on their emotions and what's going on through, with their life, as well as just your traditional talk therapy, but sometimes we're brushing a horse while we're doing it. What does the presence of the horse mean? Because to me it comes, uh, you know, and I don't know much about your program, unfortunately, but like roots of empathy. You bring a baby into a, a child's classroom and it's all about the empathy for the baby, knowing that they're reliant on you and your kindness for the baby to be happy and healthy. What does the horse mean for people who use your program? 
So the horse uh, can represent a lot of different things, but first, um, right off the bat, is this sort of sense of comfort and no judgment. Um, you know, and a lot of our people that come suffer with anxiety, um, you know, are a little bit nervous maybe coming into our program, and although they might be afraid of horses, I've heard people tell me that they are offered a sense of calm from the horse, and, you know, within the first hour, usually, we have somebody going from being um, nervous and afraid to interacting with the horse, brushing it, cleaning it, touching it. Um, so the horse can offer or represent, sorry, so many different things. Um, sometimes it's their, just their sheer strength. People draw strength from the, the size of the animal, um, not just emotional strength, but, you know, the, the presence that they feel from the horse, the energy that comes off the horse, it just makes people feel better. This might be a strange question, but I'm going to ask it. Do the horses need any required training, or do you have to vet, do you have to vet the horse? Because some can be quite jittery and maybe not offer that sense of calm. So how about the horses? So certainly all of the horses that we have, um, they, they haven't gone through a specific training program, but they have been vetted a little bit. Um, you know, we, we do have one at our barn who does not get used in the program because he is not suitable. Um, and horses, just like people, can have good days and bad days. But uh, in general, they had to be well-mannered, um, allow people to touch them and be calm. They don't have to be rideable because we're not necessarily a riding program. Not to say that riding can't be part of your um, program, but for First off the bat, it's on the ground with the horses. Um, and, you know, when, if we have a horse that's not suitable maybe for handling, sometimes, which we do have, his name's Wilson. He's a lovely Newfoundland pony, but he's absolutely no good to handle because he's just had a traumatic history himself. And his traumatic story brings benefit to the people who are, are working with him, uh, with him, but they work from a distance, so we might just observe him in the field. We might just watch him in, a, in his stall. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people share the same story that he has, which is why they're drawn to him, which is why I keep him around and I love him even though he's, he's bad. <laughs> we, we love him. <laughs> How do people get involved with your organization? So you can self-refer. Um, we try to keep everything as barrier-free as possible, so there's no big form. Um, there's a, a very short online um, uh, booking system. You just have to fill out your name and your email address and pick a time. Uh, we were providing transportation as well for people. Um, we're not currently doing that right at this time, um, but we hope to get that back up and going. But if you go on our website at spirithorsenl.com or if you go to any of our social media and look up Spirit Horse NL, um, you'll see our booking system on there. But you can also send us an email. You know, we have a lot of referrals as well through Eastern Health, from the Janeway, um, from other practitioners out there who know about what we're doing i get a lot of emails that say you know my doctor told me about this program and they think i should try it so that's that's really exciting to hear that you know the the bigger uh, medical world is seeing the value in sort of our non-traditional alternative service i'm trying to recall if i remember stories about you know formal relationships for instance like with the department of justice and public safety and maybe bringing your program to her majesty's penitentiary did that happen Yep, it did. We were the first place in Canada, actually, that um, got permission to bring horses inside a, uh, a men's maximum security prison and offer a program. Um, we did that for five years. It was called from the center of the pen. Um, I still have a little red corral, uh, what we call a round pen, uh, up inside um, the fences of um, HMP. Um, and we didn't get back there this summer and only got there twice last summer due to staffing issues, as we've all heard about how bad the staffing is at HMP right now. 
um, so we couldn't get there. But we hope to be back. I didn't take down the corral because I feel if I take it down, then we won't be back. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it there. It's probably busted, and I probably need a new one. We also used to travel out to Clarenville as well. Um, we didn't get there as often as we liked because the heat became a problem. Um, so shipping horses in a horse trailer um, is quite quite a big um, undertaking and quite stressful. Um, but we do have a partner out in Town now that we're hoping, uh, because they're a little bit closer, that um, once things are back up and running, um, you know, we might be able to do that again. But that is very seasonal. That's in the summertime for, for Clarenville and for HMP. In that setting, it must be fascinating work. How is it received, not only by the inmates, but what do the correctional officers and the correctional officers' management at both of the facilities say about the impact it had on them and their inmates? Uh, it was a huge impact. So um, we did do a study um, uh, on it and have a, a paper and everything that we put together. But it was really cool when we would go in the beginning and, of course, we were just setting up. And before the inmates came out for program, the staff would always come over and say, can I can I touch the horse? You know, they'd come out on their lunch break and they'd they'd have a little little um, look at what we're doing and, and get to touch the horses. So there was a little bit of staff benefit there, too, because, um, you know, of course, being a corrections officer and working in that setting is extremely stressful. Um, so before the inmates come out they would they would be a little bit hands-on and uh the reaction from um the participants um involved in the justice program was just amazing you know at first they all kind of thought well what is this right are we are we going riding are we going playing with ponies and they kind of joked about it and i was like no this is serious stuff we're going to talk about your addiction and mental health and you know not not why you're here or what land did you hear because that doesn't matter but you know when when we work with the horse the horse doesn't know it's out of prison nor does it care and uh, you know I don't judge as a peer supporter the horses don't judge so it really leveled the field for everybody and made everybody feel just human again um, with no judgment and you're outside and you know what people say about idle hands so it all makes sense to me how did the funding come about this go around is there a very specific pot of money that you apply for or just tell us what happened so this time I just wrote a general proposal because um, uh, we've been we've been applying to many different um, programs, you know, both provincially, federally, uh, all over the place, looking for little grants here and there to keep us going. Um, and I finally said, this, "What I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out to the government and say, like, we we really need core funding." Um, although what we did receive is not core funding as such, it is a one-time um, pot of funds for now to keep us going. It's I wrote out and I, I made a proposal basically said I need this much to get us get us through. Um, so it will hold us over and allow me to go and look for federal funding because there's lots of that, that out there as well. Um, I've you know, met and spoke with um, our MP, Joanne Thompson, and she said, like, here's all the things you can apply for. So that's actually what we're doing. It's day one, we started applying for, as we opened on Monday, or sorry, Wednesday, uh, when we apply, opened, we started applying for some uh, federal funds, and we're hoping that, you know, those are long process things, so we're hoping that we'll see some of that come through as well. I have lots of friends in the not-for-profit and charitable world, and they, to a man, to a woman, will say most of their time is spent filling out paperwork, filling out applications versus actually doing what the core mandate of their organization would be. Just how arduous a task is it? It's horrible, and it when you when you apply for all these pots of funding and you, you put so much time and effort into it and when you don't get one it's like what a waste of you know a week or two weeks sometimes because you know it's all you're thinking about and you put pour all your heart and soul into it 
Um, and it's not even for your own benefit. It's for the benefit of the people that you know it can help with. So um, I wish there was an easier process to do it. Um, you know, I sometimes feel like it's luck of the draw. I almost don't even think they read the applications. I'm sure they do, but <laughs> that's how it feels. Um, and you know, there's people that work with us who are writing grants, and I've, I've written some myself um, and been successful sometimes, not successful other times. But it, what you really want to be doing is, is doing the frontline work because we don't, most not for profits don't get um, a big pot of funds to have just one person whose sole job is just to write grants. Instead, that person wears many hats, and, and that's exactly what happens in our organization. You know, one morning, the person who helps writing grants might be helping run a session or cleaning out stalls or, you know, doing all the, all the other things besides just writing grants. Because if you get too distant and, and hands off from the actual work, then you don't, you're not passionate about your grants that you're writing. So I think it's important that the same people are involved. Government is paperwork intense, always is. You would imagine a better approach for government and for organizations like yours is you get the establishment of core funding. And annually, as opposed to reapplying, you just submit a report about how the funds worked last year. If it looked like you're having some successes and moving forward and benefiting the community, then it's a rollover, as opposed to all the time that you and others spend filling out grant applications. Uh, so last one, last thoughts to you, Erin, what you need people to know or what they want to do if they'd like to engage with you. Um, well, of course, we're always accepting donations because um, that's what we run on right now. Our charitable status uh, is in the like uh, processing phase, so we haven't heard back if that's been accepted or not. And that, of course, is another long <laughs> process um, where it can take six months to a year just after you've submitted your application to hear back on that. Um, but if people want to donate to us, by all means, if you go on our website or our social media, there are um, places where you can um, donate, and that those um, monies go towards helping feed the horses, helping keep the lights on. I've really tried to allocate the money that we have received to put that towards staff costs. But, you know, our, our horses are staffed as well, <laughs> and they probably cost more than our actual staff do uh, in the long run. Um, so we certainly um, would love for people to, to reach out and help us. And we will be having more fundraisers. You'll see some things popping up around Christmas that we always do to, to stay involved in the community and through the winter. And uh, we're, we're just so grateful for the support um, and, and sort of the, the reach that our story has had. How many employees on staff? Just curious. Uh, we have one part-timer and three full-timers. Okay. Aaron, congratulations on the funding to keep the doors reopen for another six to nine months, and hopefully you won't have to go down through jumping through all of these hoops again to keep this important service available. Thanks for your time this morning. Good luck. Thanks. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. That's Aaron Glantz. She's the program director at Stable Life. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay. How about you? Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, I was going to mention to allude to your last caller there, uh, the Brain Injury Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Are, uh, looks like they could be closing their doors due to lack of funding as well. Yeah, they're gone. And, you know, Cletus Flaherty, uh, I think we reached out to Cletus to see if he was available to come on. But, yeah, they were filling the gaps. They had one important program called ABLE, A-B-L-E. And now they've got the general information still available, but their doors have closed for now. We'll reach out to Cletus and see what that means for the community. Uh, anyway, I know you want to talk about moose. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like so I, I read that story, so I thought I'd just mention to you. Uh, well, I want to talk about uh, the moose. I heard uh, Eugene Nippert on with you there yesterday, and I got to uh, concur with him uh, and what he was saying because I, I, there was somewhere I had a close call, and I was lucky when I was driving. My wife saw the moose before I did, and I had to hit the brakes on the highway and went right in front of me. So, 
And so happened at the time I was lucky vehicles behind me passed before that happened because if they didn't have to pass, I say it would have been a car pileup and it uh, would have been very uh, serious. But so happened I was very lucky. And I was lucky she wasn't on her phone. She was She's always watching too when we're driving on the highway. And I'm lucky because she's seen the moose before me. And she said, moose, so I just hit the brake. <laughs> and went right in front of me but uh so that was a close call i, I, I was fortunate uh, not like a lot of other people are wasn't so fortunate but I, I got thinking like i know uh the fencing apparently do work in new brunswick places like that but uh, how about the, if the government's looking at the cost and expense now they shouldn't be putting the price tag on the people but well how about they looked at like high guardrails on the highway or something like that, you know. Well, a like high guardrail. Yeah, like high guardrail enough that a, that would deter a moose from going across roads. Just something popped into my head, you know, because uh, they're looking at an expense like fencing, which do work. But so, uh, well, if they got to look at other alternatives and uh, probably look at innovation ways too, like technology, like uh, uh, I think the stuff you get and put into your vehicle now, moose detector things and stuff like that. Uh, technology is well advanced, so. Uh, look at the whole broad picture, but I agreed everything what Eugene said on your show yesterday as well. Yeah, I mean, the technology, remember when we tried to utilize technology along the side of the highway with the moose detecting radar? It didn't work worth a damn, which was unfortunate and cost a lot of money. I even yeah. remember people saying we should spray paint the moose with something that glows in the dark. I mean, some some of the uh, yeah. issues are a bit nonsensical. But a high guardrail sounds a lot like a fence to me. But Yeah, like not yeah. A, a like a total like uh, defensing. I know it's probably several feet high but a guardrail like a high enough like I'm, I'm looking at the economic part of it if they're looking at the expense part of it high guard not only could be good to deter moose from crossing the road but uh, anyone that like, save people from going off the road in an accident or whatever too or as well so it could be good uh, combination things but you know it's just something to explore you know to, to take a look at our options but, but yet be interesting get John Abbott on your show to uh, discuss this matter as well that much we can do I appreciate the suggestion and the topic this morning. Daryl, thanks for the call. All right. Again, thanks, Patty, and all the best to you, you, uh, you and your staff, and uh, have a great weekend. The very same to you. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we know that the contract negotiations or collective bargaining between the Association of Allied Health Professionals and the government reached an impasse. Joining us right after the break is the president of the AAHP. That's Gordon Piercy. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals. That's Gordon Piercy. Good morning, Gordon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, good, good. Happy Friday. It's always, uh, you know, it's always good to have a nice sunny Friday. Tis that. Yeah, indeed. So we know that the both sides reached an impasse. Was there a conciliator appointed or an arbitrator or mediator? Where are we? Well, uh, Patty, I guess what I'll just, just for your listeners, I'll start with a little bit of an intro of just who we are and just so people get a little bit of context. Sure. Um, as you know, I mean, we have about 800 members working across the healthcare system. We have pharmacists, physiotherapists, social workers, psychologists, med flight specialists, and there are others. Um, they're right across the healthcare system. And uh, present in outpatient community services, hospitals and long-term care facilities, and they're in rural and urban settings. And on October 10th, uh, we decided to declare an impasse in our contract negotiations with government. 
at that time we, we initiated uh, conciliation uh, to, to go with that process because we felt that we were just um, we just felt Patty were too far apart too far apart I know uh, organizations government are loath to negotiate in public but is this straight up wage issue well actually Patty it, it's it's not really. It's it's all ties into uh, equal pay for equal work. As you're aware, in 2015, government introduced another job classification system, a new classification system. And since that time, I mean, that's almost in 10 years now. But what has resulted there is um, it's created some pay disparities that uh, are, are creating some problems within the system. So what we are asking for is for government to uh, review and update that compensation structure uh, that came from that uh, reclassification system that we, we did, that we, we set up in 2015. So for us, it's about try- preserving publicly funded, publicly accessible healthcare and Acknowledging that we are at a critical point in recruitment and retention with healthcare professionals across the system. When we see negotiations uh, that are undertaken, we talk about wages and benefits and sick leave and those types of things. But when we also have had a massive conversation about stability, work-life balance, how do you even approach that inside contractual negotiations? Because that's a you know, moving target day by day, on the floor, relationship with managers, relationship with uh, vacation time, what have you. How do you even incorporate that philosophical uh, component to people's contentment on the job? Well, Patty, you're, you're right. That is a challenge. And I will say during you know this negotiation, we tried to be innovative. We tried to do some uh, proactive pieces because that, that's a huge issue inside the healthcare system. Uh, we had some pieces of success there, not as much as we would like to have, and uh, we're trying to move that forward. But what we feel is that it's right across the system. We need to look at everything as a way to stabilize the healthcare system. So it does become about workload and working conditions, pay, uh, and stabilizing the workforce so that people are there to pro- provide the services to, to the residents of the province. So all of that said, where exactly are we now in the process? Well, right now we, uh, you know, we've been having some uh, very, we've we've had some communication with government. I can't say it's negotiation because it's not because we've we've put a halt to that. We have had some conversations. Um, we're waiting for conciliation to be pulled together at this point, and there's some been some movement on that even in the last day or so. So that's a positive for us. And we're also very much engaged with our membership right now, and they're communicating with us. They're uh, sharing, you know, they're sharing their where they're standing on that. I can tell you, Patty, that they are strong in their resolve, and they're motivated, and they're mobilizing with us. Um, you know, and we're we're providing the leadership as the union. As the union representing so many different disciplines, how does it work between AAHP and things like the Psychologists Association, the Pharmacists Association? I know they're umbrella representative groups, but what are the, what do those relationships look like? Well, we have, we have, you know, there are relationships there. I will say to you that, you know, since we declared an impasse, we've, we've had some words of support from those groups. Uh, that's been really positive. Some of them have actually issued public statements. And, you know, and, you know, their regulatory bodies, by and large, and the professional associations, and, of course, where they're union representing them in the workplace. 
So, you know, we, you know, I feel like right now we're in a good place with some solidarity there and, uh, you know, that people do get where we're to with things. And, Patty, you know, again, everybody wants to see the recruitment and retention piece addressed. It's concerning for them. It's concerning for us. And and hopefully it's concerning for the employer, too. We feel a strong competitive collective agreement is the best recruitment and retention tool that we could ever possibly hope to have. One thing that has been – we feel our membership is telling us and we feel we're supporting them that – you know, this is a time when you're doing a collective agreement, as you know, your collective agreement pushes several years out. So ours, I think, would be, we, we, we're negotiating out till 2027. It is imperative at this time, Patty, that we get a strong, competitive collective agreement if we are going to do anything with recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals in this province. How do, does your organization deal with the disparity in pay, you know, whether you work in a private setting or, say, for instance, simply with a pharmacist, someone working behind the counter at shoppers who may indeed have an equity stake in the operation versus someone working in the same discipline in the hospitals. How do you navigate those waters? Well, Patty, that's an interesting question because while that's a, while that's a real concern, I can tell you that we have members who are so firmly committed to being a part of the publicly funded health care system. We've heard that, I've heard that so loud and clear in the last few weeks. They know the system's struggling. They want to be a part of the solution. So while there is a pay and benefits piece, you know, and that is there, there are people in our membership, there are professionals who are saying, we want to be a big part of helping the system to survive. We're seeing pressures on them as people retire and resign. They're trying to pick up the workload. Positions can't be filled because the vacancies are there. We have a 14% vacancy rate in our membership currently. And as Patty, you and I have talked about in some of our professions, psychology is one that jumps out huge. We have a 50% vacancy rate. So even just going back to the 14% across our membership, that's huge in any industry. That's, that's problematic in virtually any industry, public sector, private sector, what have you. But in healthcare, it's detrimental. What we're concerned about is that we feel we're concerned about people having to go and access services that they should be able to get in the public system through the private system. And Patty, those are expensive, and people can't afford that. Uh, of course not. So is there a timeline associated with next steps, whether it be go to binding arbitration or whatever might be next? Well, right now we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're working to see where the conciliation process is bringing to us. So, you know, that'll, that'll be happening in the very near future. Uh, wheels are turning on that. So we will, we will engage in that conversation. And hopefully if that can be productive, that will continue to move us forward. We really need government to address the pay equity situation, that, that equality for work of equal value. It needs to be addressed. If we're going to be proactive, forward-thinking, and have the services available to the residents of the province, this is the time for this to happen. This, this has to be addressed right now. We do not want this to further fall into an even ex- further expanded crisis situation. I appreciate the time this morning. Gordon, anything else you'd like to say? 
Patty, just want to tell you, you know, we are fighting right now to maintain a publicly funded and a publicly accessible health care system. The residents of Newfoundland and Labrador deserve that, and we're going to keep at it. We're strong in our resolve, and we are going to fight to make sure that the people that the residents need to provide services for them across the province are going to be there. Will there be any withholding of services, walkout strikes or rolling strikes, or will we see any reduction in service as negotiations continue? Well, Patty, uh, you know, any labor disruption, because, again, we know the pressures on the system. We know that the system is very stressed. And, you know, our members are, you know, we're, we're talking about that, having very you know, serious conversations. We are hoping that we can come to some resolution so that, you know, that won't happen. Patty, the issue we have sometimes is that our services in many areas are operating, you know, bare bones, skeleton services anyways. You talk about, you know, a, a small physiotherapy department in Clarenville or, or the Buren Peninsula or something like that, where we probably have two, three, four staff. There is not much to reduce. There really isn't. And they're doing a bunch of services across the continuum. So, you know, our members are committed. They love the work they do. They're passionate about the work they do. They really want to be in doing in the hospitals and the nursing homes and the community settings, doing the work that they love to do. So we're hoping that we don't have to get to that. But the members are very firm in their resolve. They're very clear that this has to be addressed now. This is the time that we have to get government to take this situation and create some meaningful and purposeful change and address the disparity. I appreciate the time this morning, Gordon. Uh, keep us in the loop. Thank you so much, Patty. Always great to talk to you, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. I look forward to it. Have a nice weekend, Gord. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gord Piercy, President of the Association of Allied Health Professionals. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Cecil, you're on the air. Patty? Yep. Yeah, I tell you now, the reason I'm calling, I lost a very important uh, gold ring that's an awards ring and a black stone on the village area or in Wendy's on Tufsell Road. So do you wear this ring on your finger or was it on a chain or? It's on my left finger. Okay. And when I was I was in the washroom, when I went to wash my hands, probably it fell off in the sink, but uh, I went back, I couldn't find it. And so this is a gold ring with a piece of black onyx? Uh, that's right, and a award is offered. Fair enough. Cease, give us your number, or do you just want to leave it with David? 709. Yep. 727. Yep. 727-7271. 727-7271. Good luck, Gord. If yeah. we find out, or pardon me, Cease, if we find out anything, we'll get in touch with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it very, very, very much, Patty. My uh, my pleasure, Cease. Good luck. Thank you, buddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Lorraine, you're on the air. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to bring something to your attention of a call that I had witnessed yesterday. Um, I'm originally from Newfoundland, and I moved to Ontario about 25 years ago. Um, I guess forced to find work because there was lack of it at the time. I've recently moved back um, to my home and have been looking for work. Um, I was with a lady yesterday that is uh, considering employing me, and she had explained to me about a lamp program that is uh, subsidizing wages for small businesses 
while she was on the phone uh, with one of the agents from this uh, government program, um, she was more or less told that if she was willing to hire a Ukrainian, that she would get approval immediately and to sweeten the deal that she would also receive $2,500 bonus for herself. So to me, I sat there in shock and being uh, in Ontario in such a diverse multicultural population, um, I had no issue with um, different nationalities. But since I've been home and I've witnessed the issues that are here with uh, Newfoundlanders, whether it be they can't afford their rent or their mortgage or they have to choose between food or heat. Um, you know, we have people that are homeless sleeping up in tents at the Confederation Building, uh, but yet the government keeps piling in immigrants and now they're almost like convincing business owners, if you hire these people instead of your own, then we will give you this. I just think it's deplorable. I think it's horrible, and I, I'm blown away. Well, if people move here to live here, they all they become our own as well. There's specific pots of money as incentives. You know, depends if someone's here as a temporary foreign worker or whether or not there's there's a suite of incentives for hiring across the board. That's absolutely true. So, at the same time, we want newcomers to the country to work as well, right? Because on the other side of it, if they're not working, then the next argument or the next complaint will be that they're mooching off us and they're living in hotels and they're not working and they're getting government money, not having paid taxes, not working. So it's kind of difficult to strike that balance, wouldn't it be? Yes, I understand that. But at the same time, if there's such a if there's such an issue here already, wouldn't wouldn't the smart thing to be to fix the issues that you already have before you keep piling on more stuff? That's where I would think would be common sense. Um, and then since I've been home and, and just knowing so many people that have owned small businesses, this is separate, but owning small businesses that have been affected during the uh the COVID, post-COVID, that have um, since closed because the economy didn't bounce back the way they had hoped. So a lot of these p- businesses, people that are in my family, that have, um, you talked about different incentives. So the government offered these loans for small business owners to help them through these tough times. And now they're on the clock um, to have to have this money paid back by the end of the year, and if they don't have it paid back by the, the end of the year, then they put on another $20,000 on top, and then the penalties and, and interest on top. So I just think what's happening is just it's, it's just so unfair in so many ways to so many people that are struggling. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to – you can almost understand you don't want people to resent or, or – uh, but it's hard not to resent people and it's not the immigrants that should be resented because they're just trying to survive and come from a place of war-torn situations that they're just looking to to survive and live in, in peace and raise their own families. So I get that. But a lot of people don't understand and they're not looking at the big pictures and they see that 
the way a lot of people are looking at it is that these people are coming and they're getting handed out. And we've seen it on the news that you've got the, the premier standing at the airport in Ontario a couple of years ago. And as the people are getting on the plane, I think it was from Syria, you know, Trudeau is, is standing there handing out uh, Canada goose jackets and cell phones. And, and okay, we're, it's just a kick in the face to me, uh, knowing that okay. there's so much poverty within our own country and our own province. And I, I just think it's horrible. I appreciate the time, Lorraine. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and get to the uh, newscast. When we come back, you know, some comments I made about the length of time available to opposition members to have a good, careful examination of proposed legislation and or amendments so that we can have fulsome, wholesome, uh, comprehensive question periods, debates. Maybe some good ideas come from it. Maybe there's some tweaks can be, be made. This is not just about the Towns and Local Service Districts Act, but we'll talk about that. Then Pat wants to throw out a bouquet to a local girl that won a... Contest? What contest? We'll find out and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, not something we usually do, but rejoining us this week on line number seven is the Liberal member for Gander. He's the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. That's Dr. John Haggie. Minister Haggie, you're on the air. Thank you very much, Paddy. I think you raised some interesting questions about parliamentary process. Um, on the issue of this particular bill, um, the process is that uh, the first people who see the bill after first reading uh, by parliamentary precedent have to be the members of the House. And in actual fact, I could technically lose my seat for distributing a bill prior to, to that. Once that happens, the bill is printed and distributed first to the members of the House of Assembly. And at that time, we organise briefings for opposition, for our own team who have briefing materials, and for stakeholders. Uh, then what happens is second uh, reading, which uh, happened uh, yesterday, is a time where the House discusses whether or not there is a need for this bill and whether or not there's broad agreement on the principles or the approach taken. There was no debate about that. The problem we have is it's a big bill, it's 150-odd pages. So Minister Hogan, who actually determined when bills are called, he and I had several conversations about how best to do this. And we felt that the committee stage, which is the way you actually go through it, literally phrase by phrase, line by line, would be done in such a way that the members, the opposition members particularly, would be able to take it on for constituency weeks, read the 150 pages over what was essentially a 15-day period. And the earliest it could be called for committee is actually the 15th of November. So I felt it was important to lay that out there because they are trying to weave this narrative around this bill that it's a big bill, we've dumped it on them, and now we're expecting them to, to discuss it in a sensible way. Uh, we knew this was going to be a complicated bill. Well, actually, it's fairly simple. It's just big. Uh, and this was why uh, Minister Hogan and I uh, sort of joined forces and felt that constituency would be a great opportunity for um, the opposition, uh, and indeed our members, to go back to their own districts and seek further feedback. Our consultations with stakeholders actually started five years ago on this subject. Uh, they were extensive, they were fora, and this kind of thing. And in actual fact, there was an interruption for COVID, but we were consulting with MNL right up until last week. 
consultation with stakeholders, of course, critically important, but also a different thing. So just let me read a quote, and you tell me how and why it might be inaccurate. Are there good things in it? Maybe. Are there bad things in it that people aren't going to like? Maybe. The fact is we got a 146-page front and back, uh, 350-section bill 24 hours ago to go through and discuss with our caucus, with the opposition, to figure out if it's going to be best for the people that we represent. How is that inaccurate or unfair? Because getting it right is without question in government's best interest, understanding what we're debating regarding amendments or new proposed legislation, a wholesome, fulsome debate or question period or periods on it is also critically important. How is that quote inaccurate or wrong? They have had, well, they will have had 15 days by the time you get to the point where you say, we don't like this, we'd like to change this from 12 months to 18 months or whatever it is. Committee is the time for detailed amendments, clause by clause. Is there stuff in the bill that could be improved by a good amendment? Of course there is. Um, This is going to be a living document anyway. Whatever is passed by the House will actually be subject to um, review. We've been flexible in in our approach, I think, with some of the legislation, and we've brought that back when it needs to be amended. I mean, there is a big difference between a bill like this, and they now have 15 days to look at it, and say the King's Printer Act, which is simply changing the name from Queen to King. I don't know that there's an awful lot of debate that's required about that and an awful lot of preparation. I mean, to be fair, Paddy, we actually uh, uh, organised briefings for the other 17 members on the other side of the House. We had that. There was notice of it. Three of them turned up. Only one of them spoke in debate so far. Given what you've described as procedural process in the House of Assembly, do you think, regardless of your position as a Minister of the Crown, you, because at some point Liberal members may indeed be on the other side, do you think the processes as they're currently structured are appropriate and working to the benefit to the people of the province? I think it's like anything. It's evolved over time. Uh, if you go back, and again, this may sound partisan, but if you go back to the time when the Liberal Party was in opposition, and you're quite right, it is a cycle, if you go back to you know 2014, uh, there were bills of some significant size that were dropped on the opposition's desk, and it was committee that afternoon. So what goes around has, has come around, and we've been very conscious not to put the opposition in that situation and to try and elevate the whole business by not going down that road uh, from the, the previous regime prior to 2016. And I know... Uh, Minister Parsons, when he was government house leader, uh, Minister Crocker, and now Minister Hogan, have been determined to try and elevate the, the process. Can it be made better? Well, there are committees of the House that examine how the House works. Opposition have uh, voices there. Uh, and they're actually remarkably collaborative, quite frankly. So there is a little bit of, you know, the grandstanding that you see at question period and in debate where everyone wants their Facebook clip. But I think overall, uh, from where I sit, uh, we have tried to improve the process. Is there room for further improvement? Of course there is, buddy. And there should be, because, you know, we use these big catchphrases like democratic reform. That could be, you know, talking about first past the post or 50 plus one. It could be about the structure and the membership and the lineup in committees. It could be about uh, this type of debate. It could be about adjusting current parliamentary or procedural processes so that things are done better. I mean, it's not that long ago that we uh, appropriated a sawmill or a paper mill 
And why? Because we didn't take our time. So those types of things, and ended up costing the government of Canada, I think, $100 million to rectify that faux pas. Those are the types of examples, I think, where getting it right isn't simply about being adherent to a centuries-old process or a decades-old process. It's about moving with the times and understanding the complexities of the issues. And even if it's for the benefit of me or other taxpayers or other citizens, to hear the questions, to hear the answers, hear proposed amendments, the pros, the cons, and maybe the time so that we can wrap our minds around it because it's not just one issue. It's not just this act. We're talking about a 4,000-page document for World Energy GH2 and the time associated with this. We're talking about Claire's Law. We're talking about modernization of the Real Estate Act. All these types of things, I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much that maybe processes in the House should reflect the needs and the wants and the understanding and maybe some of the uh, gray areas that us as taxpayers face because there's a lot going on. No, you're quite right. And I mean, one of the things that we have as a challenge with a House of only 40 members is that if you look at the House of Commons in Ottawa and in the UK, you'll find they use select and standing committees to examine legislation and do a lot of that line by line uh, outside of the House and bring back a consensus from across the parties back to the House. Now, I know in Minister Parsons' day, Andrew Parsons as government house leader, uh, there were some legislation that went through that process, and it was very smooth. The challenge is that uh, each of us um, outside the government, uh, the the backbenchers, are the ones who sit on those committees. Uh, And because of that, there are only uh, around 20, 23 of them. And so between the standing committees and the select committees, and the, the processes for estimates, people are, and backbenches and opposition wear so many hats. There aren't enough bodies to go around to do that for everybody. And that's why with a, a, small, a small house, we tend to use the committee of the whole approach, uh, which is um, uh, part of the challenge you're just describing. Can we change and, uh, you know, do uh, select committees differently? Um, certainly, I know government house leaders present and past have looked at that uh but it it was shy on members quite frankly paddy well, fair enough. And, you know, people thought I was nuts. But when we talked about removing eight members, reducing the uh, headcount from 48 to 40, people were applauding it because of some financial savings. But it also further complicated workload for bureaucrats and elected officials to change processes, to accommodate what might be in the best interest of the people, as opposed to what might be the optics of saving a couple of million dollars on pay for eight members of the House of Assembly. I was really in the minority on that one, but I'm sticking with it. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Paddy. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. That's uh, Dr. John Haggy. He's the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. Let's take a break. Gary's in the queue to talk about Daffodil Place. We're going to talk some oil and gas. And then, Pat, you stay right there. Love to see and hear a bouquet come from South River. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Gary. You're on the air. Okay. Good morning, uh, Mr. Daly. My name is Gary Miles, and I'm calling you from Marystown. I would just like to take a moment, if I may, to uh, let your listeners know, particularly your listeners right here on the Buren Peninsula, of a uh, fundraiser coming up this Sunday in support of uh, Daffodil House. It's organized by a group called the Friends of Daffodil Place, Buren Peninsula, and it's on this Sunday. This will be the third annual 
and will take place at St. Gabriel's Hall from 1 to 5 on Sunday afternoon. And there will be a lot of activity during those four hours. But, of course, Front Row Center is uh, fundraising in support of Daffodil Place. And I'm sure I don't need to uh, describe what Daffodil Place is. It's established in St. John's, but is for the benefit of people outside St. John's who must go to uh, the capital city for um, cancer treatment, uh, uh, appointments, and uh, so on and so forth. And, of course, uh, it's very, very inexpensive, $30 per night, $20 for a second person, and that covers your lodging, three squares uh, for the day, transportation to and from your uh, appointment, uh, etc. Um, on Sunday afternoon, we will have uh, telephone numbers that we will have thrown out, and uh, folks will be invited to call. They'll be invited to drop by at St. Gabriel's Hall, make their presentation in person if they so desire. Um, entertainment, prizes, we will have tributes to battles lost, and we will have uh, stories of battles won. Uh, simply an uplifting and uh, and informative afternoon as far as uh, raising money for uh, Daffodil Place goes. And we would like to encourage everyone on the Buren Peninsula to take part in whatever way they can see fit and uh, reach down and uh, come up with a, a donation, if, if possible. I love it. I did an event uh, this past Sunday afternoon with a guest of Daffodil Place. I mean, singing the praise of the staff and the conditions and the accommodations and the food. And we know that when the money was initially raised to build Daffodil Place, it was for simply that. It was for construction. There wasn't any operational money raised at that point, which makes it an ongoing year-over-year -year need to try to cover costs for operations. And we know how important Daffodil Place is. For anybody who's ever stayed there, what it meant for, you know, to be around people in similar life circumstance, the amount of money saved, because not everybody has a family or the money or the resources to rent or stay in a hotel long term if they're receiving cancer treatment. So bravo on doing what you're doing. And we try to be friends of Daffodil Place here, you know, to support the one night stand, for instance, we do the 24 hour fundraiser over there. So we're intimately involved here at VOCM. So we're really pleased that you're doing it as well, Gary. Okay, um, there's a lot of people involved in the uh, organization of this event uh, uh, this weekend, Mr. Daly. And of course, you know, uh, we all know that when a diagnosis of cancer hits a family, whether it's mom or dad, one of the kids, grandma, grandpa, you know, uh, the whole family sort of goes into battle, you know, and... Uh, you know, we don't need the financial burden that goes with long trips and overnight lodgings and so on and so forth. So Daffodil Place is so, so valuable in that regard. You're not going to break the bank by uh, going to St. John's for, you know, five weeks, four weeks, or or however long it might be. And that is so important. A hundred percent, Gary. Thanks for doing this and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Mr. Daly, and you have yourself a great day and a great weekend. The same to you, Gary. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Terra Nova. That's Lloyd Parrott. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Hey, 
Patty. How are you doing this morning? Top shelf today. How are you doing? Doing very well, thanks. Before we get to your topic, you know, there's always the possibility for leadership contests to be really quite contentious and potentially quite divisive. I can think of a couple off the top of my head. It doesn't seem that was the case with the most recent uh, leadership contest that you were involved in. Of course, between yourself, Mr. Manning, and Mr. Wakeham. What do you? What's your takeaway from having taken a run at the leadership and how it worked out for the party? Well, the first thing I would say is it's, uh, it's one of the most awesome experiences I've ever had, the ability to get throughout the island, talk to people, understand the issues. And, you know, the divisiveness, obviously, it, it wasn't there whatsoever. And I think a part of that is because all three of us heard the same thing everywhere we went. You know, it was health care. It was the cost of living. It was the daily struggles of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians everywhere. And, uh, you know, when you're all hearing the same thing, uh, I, I think it's hard to be separated on it. Fair enough. You know, when there was always going to be a winner and there was going to be two that came up short, and that's just the way it has uh, shook out here in this case. I, I mean, I tried to follow along as close as I could. It really didn't seem like, you know, I'll echo back to the days of the uh, Grimes and Effort Leadership Contest, which was a barroom brawl. You know, maybe that's not fair, but that's what I said. So, anywho, uh, we'll move on to the topic of your choosing this morning. Lloyd, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I called to talk about oil and gas, but I, I have to respond to Minister Haggy's uh, prelude there if that's okay with you go ahead yeah it just really caught me off guard so the reality of this bill and, and every bill that comes to the house is quite simple this was a 145 page document uh, there was a briefing given and a lot of these briefings that are given there's times when we don't even get a deck from it so you go on a 145 page uh, piece of legislation and you may or may not get briefing notes from government uh, if you do, there are probably a couple pages, a couple slide pages, maybe six, maybe four. Anyhow, it's very vague. The whole idea that he indicated that only three showed up, you know, we work as a team, so I, I find that very insulting, actually, not just to the MHAs in this, that sit in this house, but to the staff, because we may sit in a room with seven or eight people for these briefings, so they have no idea how many people are there. But I'll tell you who wasn't there. He wasn't. And for him to make the statement that what comes around goes around clearly shows that this Liberal government doesn't want to listen. They do not want to give these briefings. They're trying to push legislation through. And if you don't believe that, have a look at the record of how long the House of Assembly is open. This Liberal government has had the shortest sittings in history. And the previous PC government, the House was open. There was always debate. We've brought forward emergency debates on housing and other very important issues that get shot down on a regular basis. We need to be in that House debating stuff. And unfortunately, we're not. Now, the other thing I'll go back to is he made the comment about not going to committee. Well, Patty, oddly enough, this was my first week as a deputy House leader. And what comes with that is the negotiation and the inner workings of how the House works. And it was a great experience for me. Uh, but I will tell you, they absolutely would have went to committee this week if we had to let them. And, and they, they knew that we weren't going to give them the second reading. So here we are. I, I find it absolutely shameful that he would come on and say the things he said. Well, like, whatever procedure is and process looks like and the veracity of information shared and uh, technical briefings and the uh, extent of a slide deck, all I can tell you is that someone who really doesn't care which party's in power at one specific time or another, the way things have happened, and there's glaring examples of things that have moved too quickly without the type of information to be shared, questions to be asked, we've made mistakes. And consequently, it might not be one of 
one of the 40 members or then 48 members of the House of Assembly pay the ultimate price is the rest of us. So, again, it's not my concern if you, your party sits in government or the Liberals sit in government or the NDP sit in government. Getting it right is basically all I care about. Absolute great point, Patty. And I'll go back to, to recently. I mean, maybe maybe government should have a listen because I'm sure people in Newfoundland and Labrador have heard the Privacy Commissioner say that he's been left out of legislation. He hasn't been consulted on legislation. Not just him. Then in a piece of legislation as important as this, and, and for the minister to say consultation started back in 2019, they have. But where are we? Is this is this the Fury Liberal government or is it the Ball Liberal government? Those consultations should have been reignited. They should have included LSDs, unincorporated areas. They don't. This affects every Newfoundlander and Labradorian in this province. It's, it's, it is very far-reaching legislation, and it's going to affect people's ability to pay taxes and live day-to-day. And we all know that we're in a financial crunch. This is a huge piece of legislation. So we're going back into the House. Monday is a holiday. Tuesday is the, the, the new LG is getting put in. So there's no debate Monday, Tuesday. We've got two days of debate left to pass this piece of legislation. And, and it's, it's shameful. Fair enough. Uh, those thoughts are fair ball, and it won't be well received in some corners, but that, of course, is not the mandate of this program either. So let's talk oil and gas. Yes, yeah, so Patty, I just wanted to call in and, and you know, make reference to what happened uh, on November 1st there. You know, we went out, uh, CNLOPB offered up 28 parcels of land, uh, totaling 12 million hectares, and, and again, no bids. And uh, it's a sad state we're in, you know, when we've got uh, companies paying to leave Newfoundland. Woodside paid a $193 million penalty to get out of here. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I, as much as I'd like to say, I, I believe Equinor will happen. I hope it do, and, and I'm not trying to uh, be negative, but... Both the federal and the liberal government have chased businesses out of this province, and, and we're not supportive. And I know you're going to say, what would I do different? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you. The first thing is we need to show the world that Newfoundland is a good place to work, but we also need to send a message that if you want to come and do any exploration or work in oil and gas in Newfoundland, whether it's LNG or, or offshore oil and gas, we're open for business. And that is not the message we're sending. We're actually putting more money into sending companies to Guyana than we are to bring companies to Newfoundland. And, and it's, it's a sad state, and industry has taken the hint, and they're pulling out on their own. And I am going to ask you what you do different because, you know, there was the whole concern with Bill 69 and the length of time to get approvals. That's been dealt with. And further Supreme Court ruling regarding federal overreach, which might not help on our offshore, but might help the energy conversation nationwide. In addition to that, ExxonMobil is out there exploring this year. And some of that $50 million is on the arm. You know, it's something that we're covering. We've actually changed the rules for deposits for our CNLOP land sales. So I'm not entirely sure what some of the uh, changes or tweaks that could be done to make it more attractive. What do you think? Well, I, I still think that uh, the legislation is too far-reaching. I mean, the amount of time that it takes to get approvals here is, is exponentially greater than any other jurisdiction in the world. And I'm not suggesting that we you know, forego the environmental process. We need to make sure we're doing this right. But the cost of doing business here before business actually starts is higher than anywhere else, and that is because of the regulatory processes. So we need to find a way to do that. And, and you know, these industries obviously are – we hear people all the time say, oh, oil and gas are making so much money, and I, I get that, and I don't, I don't dispute that. But the secondary processes that come from that, the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that get put to work, how it drives our economy, the things that it gives us, we have to consider that. We have to understand that we need to be better as a province with these industries to attract them here. If we, you know, for instance, if there's uh, proposals put forward, like, say, let's just cherry-pick Ecuador, 
and in that particular oil field, that part of the offshore. If we have, you know, a better understanding of the area, which we now do, given the fact that that's got a green light and there's poten- lots of potential in the Jean d'Arc Basin, if there's a checklist of mitigation measures that have to be put forward, like Equinor said, there's, I think, some 138 of those included in their application. If the next company comes forward, let's just say Exxon, and they decide they'd like to produce in that area, then if we can just you know, make sure that they check the same boxes that we just had Equinor check. Maybe, just maybe, there's a way to cut down on time because time sometimes gets unfortunately equated with quality. No one can tell me that you can't do the same type of work in 12 months that once took three years because are we just replicating work? Are we sitting on our hands? Are we trying to uh, uh, wait them out? Because a lot of incredible work can be done by these companies and governments with all the resources in place to maybe, just maybe, and not to forego comprehensive nature, not to throw caution to the wind, but some of the regulatory things, and it's not just oil and gas. You know, regulations are sometimes a problem with productivity and advancement and capital investment, so there's a lot to it. But let me add this to it. So, you know, and people, I just simply can't understand how we're blaming anybody for Equinor's decision not to proceed. So does that give you pause for concern in the whole offshore anyway? Because they've got a green light. It's completely up to them. Nobody can dissuade them at this point. No, And I guarantee you one thing, Equinor and their leadership, even if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau himself called and said, please don't do it, they don't care. They've got the green light. They'll proceed if they can make money. Yeah, so Patty, I'd say this. If you look at a company like Equinor, they want to come to an area where they can make long-term investment. And if there's one project and they have five more on the back burner and our minister, our national minister of environment, our six liberal MPs and our provincial government are sending a message that there's no more projects after this, it's really got to sway their decision-making process. That is exactly what has happened. We need to convince these companies that there's longevity in, in, in oil and gas in Newfoundland, and we all know at some point there's going to be a decline. But that isn't today. That decline is not coming today. We ought to be telling them that we're looking at LNG seriously and we want to move that forward and that we want to produce our offshore oil and gas here, right here in Newfoundland. Now, Minister Gibo said it'll be harder to get approval, and all of that being considered, Equinor says they're coming back to explore again next year, so they're not down in the mouth in full on opportunities here. They moved all their staff out of Calgary. This is where they're located. These are their Canadian headquarters, downtown St. John's. So they don't seem to be uh, shying off because of any government policy because they they told us they're going to explore again next year. So I guess they're still in. They say they're pretty optimistic that this project at Bader North will happen. But at the $16 billion price tag and the fact there's only two equity stakeholders plus, I guess, eventually us, which that's another debate, uh, that I don't think that's going away. I'm not surprised they made the decision like they did and when they did at the Energy NL conference, but we'll see what the future holds. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm not surprised there were no bids on the most recent land sales from the CNLOPB. Last words go to you, Lloyd. Yeah, Patty, I, was, uh, I wanted to say a little bit about the housing issue. You know, uh, sure. yesterday VOCM reported 892 new starts uh, here in the province this year, which is the lowest. Our provincial government is telling us that there's, they're going to build 850. That leaves 42 housing starts in this province, which is obviously the wrong math. And sadly, the Liberal government has been giving us the wrong math right from day one. It was 11 houses going to be built, you know, 11, 750 and it turned out there was 11, there was 32 going to be reconstructed or fixed in, in Cornerbrook, and it turns out those 32 are going to be torn down. We absolutely need to do something about this housing issue. And and uh, they've dropped the ball. I mean, the minister yesterday wasn't allowed to go out and speak to the media again. When questions are asked in the House of Assembly, he's been muzzled. He hasn't been allowed to get up and speak. And I'm not... 
I'm not in any way blaming this minister. He inherited a big problem. But if we have a government that isn't allowing a minister to do his job, we've got a serious issue. And, and I really believe that the government is not facing this housing issue, and it needs to happen really soon. Appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. One more thing, Patty. Quick. Next Saturday, Remembrance Day. I encourage everyone to get a poppy and attend every service they can. Thanks for this, Lloyd. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, Patty. Take You're care. welcome. Bye-bye. Lloyd Paris, the PC member for Terra Nova. Pat's got a bouquet. He's had that in his hand for a while to throw it. He can do it right after this. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not bad. The reason why I was calling, Patty, is I'm a, a counselor at the town of South River. Mm-hmm. And Audrey Snow, a young nine-year-old, uh, she won the Junior Miss Newfoundland Labrador pageant. And we are having a motorcade on Sunday. And uh, we just wanted to put it on to encourage all the residents to uh, drop by and join, join us in the motorcade. It's starting at 1.30 from the Church of Resurrection in South River. What's her name again? Pardon me? Audrey Snow, is that what you said? Yes. Audrey Snow. Tell us about her. What do you know about Audrey? Well, I'm on the council, and so is her Her dad is on the council with me as well, too, Ryan. And uh, I don't know Audrey personally, but uh, she's nine years old. She goes to All Hollow School in North River, and uh, she won the uh, Junior Miss Newfoundland Labrador. And I know all the money that uh, she had, you know, businesses gave her. She made a donation to the Shriners. Oh, good she gave for her. all the money that was given back to the Shriners, and they're going to be in the motorcade with us on uh, Sunday. Wonderful. Uh, do me a favor, Pat. When you see Audrey, encourage her. Ask her if she'd be interested in calling me to talk about why she did what she did with the Shriners, the Junior Miss NL pageant, and everything else she wants to talk about. I definitely will. Uh, like I said, we're expecting a good turnout. And uh, after the motorcade, we're going to meet back at the town hall. And we're going to present her, uh, you know, with a bouquet of flowers. And uh, we got all letters sent out to all hollows, encouraging the students to come by for support as well. Sounds like a great initiative and a fun afternoon. Thanks for telling us about it, Pat. And please do ask Audrey to give me a call. I definitely will, Patty. You take care and have a great day. Same to you, Pat. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Congratulations to Audrey. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line five. Darlene, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Okay, how about you? Oh, I'm having a better day than the last time I was speaking with you. So what? I'm just going to I'm just calling to give a little quick update on my experience with Tent City. Uh, the last time I spoke with you, Patty, I had mentioned that I sent an email to our premier and some other all the MPs, actually, and representatives in the House. Um, the next day, I did hear back from a few of them. I don't know if you're interested in me reading a couple of the responses. Sure. All right. Well, the first one, I won't say who's who to give out. You know, I know who's responded and who hasn't. But um, this one is, thank you for your email. Your concerns of those living in the tents on the parkway are justified. It is very cold today and it'll only get colder to make matters worse snow is forecasted for tonight and it's a reminder that winter is upon us this came in on um october 30th 
On two separate occasions in the first week of the House of Assembly was open, we attempted to hold an emergency debate on the housing crisis and the situation facing, facing the tenders. In both cases, the Speaker ruled that our motion was out of order. We could have had the debate if it had been on anonymous consent. Uh, all it would have taken was for the Liberal House leader of the Premier standing up and support our motion. Sadly, they didn't. Instead, they debated the changing of the name of the Queen's printer to the King's printer and closed two hours early. Please keep writing, Premier Fury, Minister Pike, um, I didn't, Cody, and demanded action be taken for housing on these souls. So that was the first one. I thought it was interesting because it went into detail with information that's happening inside the house. Okay, and, uh, and Cody is Minister Cody, of course, the uh, Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Deputy Premier. Yep. Yes, and I actually, I was, uh, like, I, I'm pretty new to the to these, so I had to resend the email to a couple. So to be fair to her, I haven't received it yet, but she didn't get the original message when I sent it on the 29th. Um, another one come in and just said, uh, Darlene, I agree that there should be a priority for the government. If the government doesn't have its priority with the health and well-being of its citizens, then it's lost its understanding and responsibility to govern. We will continue to push government to ensure these living in tents and all citizens have a housing challenge, are treated as valuable citizens, and given the basic human right of safe and clean place to live. So that was the two main ones. The other ones were just pretty generic. Thank you for your email. Yes, it's a concern. We hope that they're out of tent soon. In the meantime, I went there. So the next day I went there on the, the Monday. Uh, I spoke with you that day. I was in. There were 15 there that night. Uh, did a live. They were in contact with their individual workers, like the people, their caseworkers, I think is the, is the name for it. And that was on the 1st. And now, as of last night, I was in yesterday, and the good news yesterday was I was in yesterday to assist a couple of the girls move into their permanent housing. Uh, I had a little cry on the way home. Patty, there's one young girl. She hasn't had a roof over her head in over seven weeks. She's been sleeping in a tent. So it, it steps forward. These are people who want the help. They're, uh, you know, if there's anyone, any of them listening today, they have my number. They know me and some other volunteers. We will keep in contact with them. We'll, you know, they're, they're our friends now. They're, we're not going to forget about them and just let them fall off the wagon again. You know, we're there to, to help pick them up. So uh, as of last night, sorry, uh, there's one left there. There's, there was three there last night, but as of this morning, they're going, they are currently taking their items and putting it in taxi cabs because they're going to be put in motels until housing is uh, available, like a lot of the other ones have been put in. I won't name them, but various hotels throughout the city. Um, there's yeah. one gentleman left there in a vehicle. Well, we got we got to get it right, and I don't know if it's a matter of government not caring, but we're just not prepared for what has happened here in the recent mm -hmm. past. Now, a lot mm -hmm. of things got absolutely upended and derailed since 2020, but we can't have these types of things. It's also, I think, important. This is not to deflect from government responsibility because it is their responsibility. We're seeing it happen across the country. Communities are right. just grappling with how to deal with this. I mean, Cranbrook, uh, Cranbrook PC, they passed a bylaw. That means they're going to haul the tents down. 
down at nine o'clock in the morning. Don't, I won't allow them to be put back up till nine o'clock at night. In Halifax, they're trying to find specific areas for them and the provision of wraparound services. So cities and towns across the country are trying to figure this out. You know, in some of the bigger centers, it's been really well understood what homelessness looks like. And, you know, you can talk about the biggest cities in the country where it's quite visible. But around here, it's always been a hidden problem for the most part. Now, of course, there's always been homeless people, but it's just different now. And even there's the caliber of the emergency shelters and the minimum standards and the number of units that have not been built, the number of units of the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, which are currently shuttered. And yes, the government can tell me they put $3 million aside to repair those 143 units, but the fact of the matter is they're not repaired. And we need to know why. I didn't. I didn't even bore you with those responses. I've got I got those responses from people as well, like the blah blah blah, but what they put into it, the plan, like you know where you say it, but you got to do it. And I agree, Patty. This isn't like this isn't a left or right issue. Like this this is everyone coming together. You got to figure it out now. It's a new issue. It's a, it's a crisis. Like there's a second. Um, I, I don't know much about it other than I just quickly spoke with someone outside of it when I drove by to go to one of the shelters where I knew people were. The second tent city has popped up down by Colonial Building. It's true. So 15 tents there. Um, it seems, I, I can't speak for them because I don't know, but it seems like the volunteers, there's a lot of volunteers there. There's a lot of help. They got the little kitchen. They're closer to the, um, the, the services that are available to them so they don't have to get bused back and forth. Like at the point of the hill, being on Confederation was the eyesore. Like, help us, we're not hidden. And when I called you initially, Patty, a couple of weeks ago, and I was very passionate and, and hyper, like, I didn't know it existed. So I've taken the time now to drive away the city, and you just said it, said it, they're hidden. There's hidden homeless. There's people living, they don't want to be known. They're, and, and not just like in a tent in the backyard, or they're in someone's vehicle, or there's like nine people in a house, or like it, it's truly, I, I just can't understand it. I just like little a common sense thing tells me we got the Canada got the best trees in the world, the most land in the world, the most skilled workers in the world. Common sense tells me we should not have a housing shortage crisis here. Like it's simple: close the borders, build the houses, house our own before it does a mass immigration. Like that's just my personal opinion. I okay. could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but. It seems like simple solutions. I don't know if there's any simple solutions to complex problems, but uh, fair enough. And I'm sure people who you're helping really appreciate it. And I appreciate the time this morning, Darlene. Take good care of yourself. All right. Thank you, Patty, and you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Good morning. You're on the air. Hello? 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 Dave, is there some issue with the connection here? Can you hear me, line number one, caller? Yes. Is that you? That's me. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't tell if I was on line or not. You're on the air. Oh, my. No, I'm, I'm calling inquiring about a call you got yesterday. Uh, there was this gentleman. He said there was a, a clinic for people uh, with mental issues, mental health, and drug addiction, and uh, it's a psychiatrist, uh, a doctor, a physiotherapist. Could you give me the number for a clinic that we could call? Where are you? Uh, in Bay Roberts. Okay. 
So what you're referring to, I believe, is Keith's call talking about the flexible assertive community treatment teams. So there's seven of them, multidisciplinary, as you rightfully point out about the type of healthcare professionals that are working therein. There's not a single phone number for it. What we're told is that for people who like to be part of these teams, it's not just a standalone clinic necessarily, but the best thing to do is you can open up the contact information with this uh, with Bridge the Gap, which has two P's, or call 811 to get a specific number because that's everywhere I've looked, that's where they've put me back to. Bridge the Gap. Yeah. Okay. And that's G-A-P-P dot C-A. So that's its own standalone website. And then 811, of course, is the other option. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we have a... We have a family member that's having a, a bit of issue, um, kind of in denial that there's anything wrong. Uh, they've been in the Waterford, <clears throat> and uh, he, he he used to wake up and be people on top of him and pouring water on him because he wasn't in the room by himself. And it was more scary being in there than it was being home uh, trying to, well, we, us, or his sister trying to convince him that there is something wrong, and he's spiraling down in a real, real bad hole. And all that comes to my mind is that uh, that beautiful woman that was on your show there a while back uh, pleading for her son, and by the time he got the help, he was already gone. And uh, I just don't want this to happen to her because she's had so much... She's had so much to deal with, with her own family and with her siblings, and uh, it's like drugs has always been around her life, and she's just trying, this is her last last attempt now, trying to get this young man straightened away, which he, he did have a, a, a full active life. He did work, and he made, you know, pretty good money, but he... He went down this hole, and uh, there's like there's no getting him back, and it's almost like he's in a psychotic break, and uh, there's no options there to help him because you can't call anybody because if he's not willing to go in uh, to be assessed or whatever the case might be, he's going to fall through the wayside because there's nothing else that anybody can do. So this assertive approach might be exactly what's required here. I'm going to give you another number, a direct number. Okay. So, of course, it's 709. 709. 945. 945. 65. 65. 13. 13. Yep. Thank you very much, Mr. Patty. Good luck. All right, my love. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, it is one of the differences, and I've had a couple of people, I think there might be some misunderstanding out there. Like, we had a call earlier the week it was about a wellness check that was done by law enforcement and the thought was they snuck up on me inside this world called assertive community outreach when you connect with these fact teams they'll tell you exactly how it works so you'll know that there'll be continuous monitoring continuity of care and here's how we do it so for keith for instance and i know he doesn't mind me saying this because he said it live on the show there were times during his ultimate struggles where he simply didn't want to go to his appointment. He'd cancel or he'd shirk any of his personal responsibility because, as he says, and as uh, Jeffrey, a caller earlier in the week, said, as an individual, you've got to put something into it as well if you want to get anything out. So for folks who are, you know, have reached the conclusion that there's nothing wrong, 
and they don't need any help. Or, like Keith, they were willing to just cancel their appointments, turn their back on it, even though they knew they needed help, even though they knew they wanted help. Sometimes in that state of mind, with that impact on your psyche of the addiction you're dealing with, and you know you're failing yourself, but it's just a difficult thing to do to wrap your mind around, I know what I need, I know what I feel, I'm sick of this, I want to get out of this death spiral, but somehow they just can't take that extra step. So inside of this world of the flexible assertive community treatment, that might be exactly what's required for folks who find themselves in that either denial and or they know what they need, they know where to go, but they just cannot, you know, take that final step to make sure they get the access. Now, we know that, well, we're told that inside the world of staffing shortages, really across the board, certainly inside of healthcare, there's likely a staffing shortage inside these fact teams. When they were established back in July of 2020, there was said to be some 200 staffers would be part of this process which is important stuff because there's a wide range of uh, disciplines being represented in these seven multidisciplinary teams. So if there's a staffing shortage, it's just that we need to know because the seven that were created, what would have been total capacity and what is the numbers that are actually on the patient rosters now? Because it sounds like a just tailor-made solution for so many people. So we'll still try to get that particular piece of info so we can share it with you. Because uh, that caller was right. Psychiatrists, uh, general practitioners, nurses, social workers, counselors, it might be exactly what some folks need. All right, let's take uh, a break for the newscast. When we come back, the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology is Andrew Parsons. He's also the member for Virgil LaPoil. He's in the queue, and then it's you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burjo Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Good morning, Minister Parsons. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? Man, it's Friday. It's sunny out. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good place to be. <laughs> I'm trying not to dwell on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, I know. There's I know. lots of stuff to cover, as usual, but let's start with your reaction to no bids in this year's annual uh, land sales at the CNLO PB. Lloyd Parrott was on the show not long ago talking about the fact that maybe it's a political issue, maybe it's a regulatory concern, maybe the province or the country isn't appealing to oil and gas companies, given some comments, for instance, coming from Minister Gibo. Your thoughts on the zero bids? Well, just, I guess, a few different points at the top. Number one, I mean, look, obviously uh, disappointed uh, about it, but I can't say I am uh, completely shocked. Uh, The second part is that, you know, I certainly don't think it's anything to do with the province per se. Uh, You know, when we are looked at globally and, you know, and I've gotten a chance to travel around and have conversations that are ongoing all the time. I mean, people look at our regulatory regime, they appreciate it workforce, the resource itself, uh, you know, I have no doubt uh, when they look at us from a federal point of view, I'm sure that has some weight. But, you know, it's like anything. A couple points actually I made in the House yesterday when Lloyd asked questions was, I mean, for many years, we were like, you know, a one-horse thing. I mean, we were totally relying on oil. We're at the point now where when it comes to that, we've we've still got about $2.1 billion on the books for expiration next year. Equinor themselves just actually hired their project manager, put them in St. John's. You're not doing that if you don't see a future here. 
but at the same time, I think we've diversified. We've always talked about it, but now we're moving into uh, renewable fields. I mean, there's huge excitement there. And this week was an indicator. I mean, mining is booming here. So I think we've got a lot of positivity, and that's what helps us get over something like where we don't get a bid. Yeah, it's disappointing, but it's not the end of the world by any stretch. Inside the alternative forms of energy, what have you, what's the status of the regulatory regime being created for offshore wind? Uh, so that one's still moving. Obviously, we have to work with the feds on that, similar to what we do for offshore oil, as everybody knows. So, you know, there's legislation on the federal level. We we will have legislation from a provincial level. Right now, uh, I think it comes down to figuring out what that jurisdictional is. And the premier has made clear. I've heard him, but not only have I heard him, I've watched him do it in person with the feds. If we are, we need similar language. We need. We are the principal beneficiary. We will be the principal beneficiary, the same as we are for oil. And anything other than that language isn't going to fly. Is there any, you know, consideration? Is it about near shore or how far offshore? Or is it simple as if you put a turbine in the water, it becomes federal jurisdiction? So where's the complexity lie? So that's what it comes down to is, you know, this sort of uh, the jaws of the land argument, which, you know, I think uh, that's one part. And then where do we want to go? I mean, there are certain parts of the province where for various reasons, including, you know, the just you look at icebergs, for example, that there's never going to be any offshore wind development. It's just not feasible. Uh, so that's why I think we need to maximize where it is feasible what we do. But look, there's more parts to that, too. I mean, a big part to me uh, is when we talk about offshore, we've got some great opportunities, but there's a lot of consultation required too. I mean, we're we're talking about fish harvesting areas. We're going to have to work with our harvesters to make sure that, you know, they are on board with this as well. We need to hear from them. So we're working on it. Um, that's one of the reasons we went with onshore is because we could control that. We are in, you know, this is fully within our autonomy. This one requires some work. I mean, we're still on the, the timeline. We're still keeping, you know, matching pace with Nova Scotia, who's probably a, our closest neighbor and our closest competitor when it comes to offshore wind. Before we get to onshore, I mean, even some of the proponents that we're told have come knocking about opportunities here. Do they also come knocking with, you know, potential PPAs in, in hand? Because, you know, proximity to market, because we're not the market for any offshore wind if it's ever created. There's not one single offshore wind turbine in this country. So what do they even talk about with market? Northeastern United States, how do they get it? I mean, there's a lot of proximity concerns that I don't even know how they're being addressed. Well, this is one of the things, and it's sort of a chicken and egg situation here, is that, you know, we're doing what we can, but there's certain things uh, that require a little more time before we talk about offtake agreements and PPAs. So, you know, those are the responsibility of the proponents, but at the same time, obviously, we want them to have beneficial conversations. What I can say about that, and I saw it just two weeks ago when we had the German delegation from Hamburg, and just so people realize, like, the impact there, they, they came over, they picked two spots in North America to come. One was Philadelphia, the other one was here. Uh, and in talking to those people, it's real. Right now, it's just about figuring out the marketplace, what is the cost going to be. But again, the proximity is actually in our favor there. I mean, we're closer to Germany than we are British Columbia. So I think we're, we're doing well there. But I think, it, like anything, um, there's still some, I guess, work that needs to be ironed out there when we talk about what that cost is going to be. Right now, from our perspective, we're just trying to get the proponents, uh, you know, they've got to go through their environmental processes. We still have work on our end when it comes to regs and, and you know, other legislation. So there's a lot of work going on. That part is on mainly on the proponents. Before we get to minerals, let's go to onshore wind. So 
You know, when the World Energy GH2 document was submitted to the government and released publicly, it was pretty daunting. I have, I'm lucky enough to have access to really smart people to try to help me sift through these types of things, even with this pause and more, more information required by Minister Davis and his team. If it comes back as daunting and as complex and as technologically laden as the last one, is there a downside with having something like, for instance, the joint panel review that preceded Muskrat Falls? Because concerns may be legit, they might not be, but it's just hard to digest that kind of information if you're not a process engineer or you're not you know, involved in the business of wind, period. So is there a way that we can do this to ensure we get it right? Because this, this way feels like it's a lot of fast track stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I sort of disagree with that notion. I think the fast track part comes from the company themselves. I mean, they have, you know, uh, they they've made it quite clear how aggressive they are, you know, what their timeline is. But that doesn't factor into how the Department of Environment and Climate Change operates. Uh, and so, a couple points I make. Number one, I have nothing to do with it. I mean, my my side was helping to set up the rules and regs on uh, allowing them to bid on the land. But once it goes in the environment, I'm hands off. No different than mining, no different than oil. We stay out of that. That's not our, I guess, jurisdiction. The second part is that that department and the people within that department, these civil servants, they are quite smart. They don't care about timelines. Their job is to fully review the information in front of them. Uh, that's why, you know, in this situation, they came back and said, nope, yellow light, you know, you need to do more work. No different than actually Marathon last year. Marathon actually was a bit behind schedule. When they put their EA in or EIS, uh, the, the uh, department came back and said, no, we have some issues when it comes to caribou and caribou uh, breeding grounds. To, you know, we need to talk about mitigation. So the company had to go back to the drawing board, work with the department, and then they got up and running. So I, I get the concerns. Don't get me wrong. I understand it. I mean, I was one of the people that sat back when we talked about muskrat. But the part that makes me feel good is that we have these people within the department whose job is to look at that and they want the best as well it is certainly not guided from a political angle uh and if you want to do something fast uh, that's fine but that doesn't guide them it's hard to separate perception from reality sometimes, and the distinct flair or feeling is that the provincial government is all in here, whether it be with economic opportunity, jobs, expanded tax base, you know, being on the ground floor, that type of stuff. It will come down to bureaucrats doing their job, but it feels like the province is in. So how do you combat that when we're talking about potentially a more restrictive process and the feds would be able to implement with the Impact Assessment of Agency of Canada? Because people think the province wants this, and consequently the province will get it. Well, the province does want that. I mean, this is, we want to be a part of this industry, but I would point out to everybody, Nova Scotia wants it. All the other provinces that don't have it would like to have this opportunity. We actually have the best world-class resource. People want to be a part of it. Look down in the states. All these states that have eastern seaboard access, they are in this game. So there is a bit of a competitive angle here. There's only so much capital. There's only so much opportunity. So, yes, why would we eliminate ourselves from that and let Nova Scotia and all these states who are wanting to get on? Look at Biden. Biden himself is putting, you know, we're competing with what the states is doing to move into this renewable market. Uh, so, yes, we do want it. But, like I say, I helped set up the, the you know, the, the industry so that we can have it. But 
hands off. There's an environmental process. It has to be followed, and it's going to be followed. So that part I can do nothing about. We're sort of sitting back. But, yes, we want to be a part of this. Why would we not want to diversify the opportunity and continue to be reliant on one resource? We did it with fish for years. Then we did it with oil. So I'd like to see us have an opportunity to make money from multiple different angles that will pay for health care education, housing, and all these other things, they cost money. So we need to get some benefit. But part of that is, you know, the the social side of things and the responsibility side of things and finding that balance. No question the Americans and the Inflation Reduction Act really did force the hand of the federal government here to follow suit in some form, even not to the uh, amount of money that the Americans are able to put forward. So, you know, we've had this conversation, no provincial money, you know, but there is federal tax money. When you look at the industry around the world, there's going to be a lot of players entering. And then consequently, we're probably going to find ourselves in a glut of hydrogen, whether it be green or otherwise. So how firm will the contract look? Because let's just say the market softens. Their business model today might not work in a decade, and they'll be coming back with their hands out, which industry does. When industry falls on hard times, they go directly to the government for additional supports or tax breaks or subsidies or something. How how airtight and concrete will the contracts look? Because the likelihood of coming back looking for government supports in the future seems very real to me because everyone's getting in and going in all in and before we know it there might not be the market as it's envisioned today well there's no doubt about that i mean this is brand new and i don't think anybody has a crystal ball in terms of where this is going to go so where we are in a decade remains to be seen right now i think that the the way that we're moving forward here is that look we're setting up the conditions for success but we are not investing uh, the feds uh, have said they will and i think they need to they have talked about incentivization this is right in their sort of purview and their and their playbook so yes they need to come on board here and again we are competing with the states the feds you know uh, need to keep up with what the americans are doing there um and again yes i mean you look at other jurisdictions i was literally just reading early this morning i mean it is heavily subsidized in many other places that's not our intent at this uh, juncture and very different one of the things that ticks me off to no end is when people talk about muskrat well there's a big difference muskrat we paid for this one we don't have any financial investment in will we need to do it later on we haven't had that put to us we'll leave it as it is because right now is not our intent there's a lot to talk about i think you have a half hour window can i put you on hold come back and wrap this up yes sir not a problem okay, let's do exactly that put the minister on hold take that break don't go away welcome back let's rejoin minister parsons on two minister you're back on the air yeah, man, this feels like I'm running a marathon here. You're uh, <laughs> you're good. Uh, I don't know what I am. I'm tired at this point on a Friday. <laughs> okay, now there's still looming questions about, you know, environmental assessment is one thing, but it's the proponents' interaction with our own grid. We don't know a whole lot about it. They say they might need upwards of 158 megawatts 24-7 during parts of the year. Jennifer Williams and her team at Hydro looking at a 150 megawatt diesel generator at Hollywood, which is backup power, not power for them. Given all of that, what do we know about that relationship? And is there a role for the PUB here? Because one of the grid is starting to be uh, is part of the implication here. Who gets to boil that brass tack down? Because unless we know how the power is going to be provided, the environmental assessment is only one of the pieces on the board. 
Absolutely. I mean, power as a whole is a huge conversation. I literally just had a meeting uh, regarding mining opportunities, and that's one of the issues we deal with there as well. We have a huge need for more capacity uh, there. So when we look at uh, the impact of these projects on our grid, that's a big concern for us and was actually one of the the factors that we considered. So uh, all all I'll say is this, is that there were – Part of their application was what their power needs were. Uh, that's what they were, you know, dealt with uh, in that regard. Hydro was a part of that, so we we take that, you know, pretty seriously. And what I'll say is this: is that uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the power they're going to need down the road. Well, we'll figure that out. But they are not the only ones that need power. Um, but again, this sort of points to the bigger question. I mean, we are having some pretty huge discussions on, uh, you know, the opportunities in Labrador 2041. What are we doing down in Beta Spare? So I guess the, the, the positive or the good news is that we've got a ton of opportunities. Not everybody has that. The second part, though, is which first, how long, what is the cost, who do we partner with here? Do we partner with anybody? You know, negotiation. So there's a lot of heavy work, but I, I do think there's more of a an urgency. I, I think we all see the need to move forward pretty quickly on it. Well, beta spares, uh, $527 million for an eighth generating unit. It probably adds up to a billion when you refurbish Holyward to last for however long, maybe the end of the decade and possibly beyond. So even with all of that, that doesn't satisfy power needs for wind to hydrogen to ammonia, let alone the mining opportunities that are just right there in front of us. Try to fast track another few here. So with 2041, again, nobody wants to jeopardize the negotiations. They talk about it a lot in the province of Quebec. Is it not possible to inform the voters to even release the findings of our own provincial committee, which is not talking about renegotiation with Quebec. It's simply what 2041 means. So it's going to be hard to understand what's a good deal, a bad deal, a political victory or a loss if we're not even entirely sure what 2041 means. Do you think it's a good idea for us to be able to get that info so that we can ask the questions, we can understand the outcome of these negotiations? So there's a difference here. The one thing I would point out, though, is that, you know, certainly Quebec talks about it, but I don't think there's any more substantive conversation in Quebec than there is here. You know, you don't see Premier Legault out talking about the intricacies of the deal. Uh, they are just talking, look, it's super, super important to them. It's equally or of more importance to them because of their demands, which I think puts us in a good spot. But you know what? I think the Premier sort of started off, in fact, did a couple good interviews with All Newfoundland and Labrador, where he's talking about what this means. And I do think there's an educational component to this, for because every Newfoundlander and Labradorians heard about it. They know about it, but they do not know the details. They don't realize that Hydro-Quebec is a significant partner in this. It's not like in when the clock strikes 12 in 2041 that they're out of it. They are still a partner. Um, what I can say is that, look, we've got a really good team that are uh, working on this, led by Carl Smith. Um, uh, Jennifer Williams is on it, the deputy for justice. So we've got good people there, um, but hopefully we can continue to talk about it. The other than that, I don't really know what to say. I know Quebec is not having that conversation. The other side, when you talk about politically, here's a guarantee, and here's something I'm willing to bet on. I can guarantee you that whatever deal we put out there, it will be criticized by the opposition full stop. There is no deal we put forward that they come out and say, that's a good deal. I'm I'm putting that out there now. I can guarantee it. Well, I mean, I don't even know if I'll be able to uh, evaluate or adjudicate the quality of the deal, the win or not, until I know what we're actually talking about. Well, there's and a difference, though. When you do it, I know it's coming from an impartial point of view. You will look at it. You, Like you say, it's no different than me. Look at the smart people around you to help you judge it, and you'll make a judgment. But in some cases, 
you know, when it comes to the opposition, I don't think that's, you know, again, and I've been in opposition, they're going to look at that and they're going to find fault regardless of whether fault exists, whereas my biggest concern is for people like yourself. Other, there's a lot of very smart people in this province that know a hell of a lot more about it than me, but I agree. We need to get the information out there. It's just right now we don't have any, any of that information to put out there, and again, there's always that fear of jeopardizing. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to answer for Carl Smith, but would the government be okay if Carl Smith agreed to come on and tell us what they don't understand at this point, exactly what 2041 means? Because That's I tried to broach my, it with Jennifer uh, Williams and didn't get it very far. Yeah, listen, that one's above my pay grade. I don't know, uh, like, personally, no issue, but I don't know if, you know, what they've, you know, signed or what they do, what they cannot do is neither here nor there to me. But it's certainly, Carl doesn't answer to me. Carl answers to, uh, I guess, the premier. And it's up to Mr. Smith whether he wants to talk or not. All I know is I have a hell of a lot of faith in him. He's a very smart individual and so I, I feel pretty good about who we have handling this for us in conjunction with there's a lot of smart people within various departments there's a lot of resources to help us and again I think our position is really strong but you know we need to make sure we get the best out of this and one of the things too is this is not sometimes there's that mentality oh we need to beat Quebec beat Quebec there's got to be you know both sides are going to need a win here and I think there's space for that well the win for Quebec is that 15% of their portfolio was made up at the Upper Churchill so their win is that they can continue on past 41 and their equity stake doesn't go away so for the first time ever even though we've lost repeatedly in court we might be in a better position it seems like we are and I guess we'll all watch it unfold let's get to mining you say it's booming and I know we've got 27 of the 30 critical minerals which will be part of batteries whether it be for your cell phone your laptop and yes electric vehicles and other applications you say it's booming what's changed in the recent past because i thought they would come flooding you know the only democratic country on the face of the earth with 27 of the 31 required you would think given the appetite and the big battery plants being built in ontario and quebec that all of a sudden the miners and not junior junior players the biggest companies in the world would be flooding in what's going on well, what I can tell you is that that interest is there. I, I mean, I'm, I've never been one to get out there and sort of talk about something before it's happened. But what I can say, we are seeing interest from literally all over the globe, whether uh, we're talking Japan, we're talking UK, we're talking Europe, we're talking the States. Right now, there's a, a huge opportunity. But it comes down to, obviously, we need to get the capital here. The good thing is we have the resource. One big part that, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback over the last few days is that we actually included our iron ore in the critical mineral program that we are the strategy we just put out and that's a big win for this province because we do have the best resource there is i think uh, we talk about like the high purity low emission which is what everybody wants when we talk about steel making steel is a huge emitter and there's a global demand now to have this green steel as they talk about so when we include that uh, that's being that's being noticed. I mean, I just go, we had the, the mineral resource review here this week. Everybody is talking about that part and, and what an opportunity. But like anything, the other side of this too, those, we have decisions we have to make. And one of the big issues, you need more power to do these things. So that's one of the big discussions. Literally just had it before I came on the call is we have huge power demands. Jordan Brown. Uh, in the house yesterday asked me about it so we are you know we have a huge opportunity we need to make some decisions and these aren't small decisions these are billion dollar decisions um 
but again, there's there's capital coming in. You only have to look at when we talk about the lithium find just down on the southwest coast, say uh, Sockerman and um, Benton. I mean, they just got some huge investment again from south of the border. So we're seeing. I think you're going to see more. But I think one of our jobs too is that you know we're not as well known as we, I think we'd like to think we are. We need to continue selling ourselves globally, uh, and that's part of the job. It's another geographical and necessity relationship with the province of Quebec and the Labrador Trough. So on the critical minerals list, I mean, we've got the copper, the nickel, the lithium, fluorspar, cobalt, manganese, many of them. Are any of the minerals, because I know things like thorium and uranium have federal oversight and monitoring, are any of the other critical minerals, do they have a federal relationship and a federal role to play here? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on what angle on. I mean, the good thing is that what we're doing, I think, jives with what the federal government's wanting to do as well. And, you know, the better we, we do, the better it goes for Canada as a whole. You know, there's the environmental side of things, that, especially when we talk about uh, what's going on in Labrador. I, again, I would assume that, you know, the feds will look at whether this triggers their impact or their environmental impacts. Uh, the other side, I would say, is, look, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, that part of all of this is we need to work with our Indigenous leaders and organizations. I wouldn't want anybody accusing me of saying we're just going to be able to go full bore and do what we want. We have a relationship that we have to respect and they're part of it. The good news is I think there's a win here for absolutely everybody. Um, so yeah, right now I mean we have a lot of the same minerals on the federal list. Iron ore is a new one. We're going to work with uh, the feds on that. I know there's a huge supporter in Yvonne Jones. Uh, obviously this is something that she loved that she wants to be, you know, she's a part of and she, you know, she's no support and I do on this. Uh, so I think we're going to make some strides there. The feds themselves are investing a ton of money in this, so we're gonna, I think we're going to see some good things coming out of this. Regarding the indigenous relations, and I mean, that thirst for power, I'll be monkey's uncle, but that's not Gull Island at some point in the future. And the Inuit Nation says, based on that $5.2 billion rape mitigation plan, which gives them about a $1 billion haircut at Muskrat, they're not interested. So I don't know how that gets settled or solved, but that is absolutely part of this conversation. Uh, very last one. Is the deal the negotiations, the redress for the since 69 or the next 17 years, is that deal actually done or we're just waiting for an announcement? No, it's not done. I appreciate the time. All right, thanks and have a great weekend. You too. Take care. That's Andrew Parsons. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology. Final, oh, not the final break. We got one more after this, but here comes the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line three. Tony, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Okay. How you doing? <clears throat> Not bad. Uh, I was listening. Uh, I wouldn't have only about health care, I don't think, but I listened to Tom Osborne, and what you were saying is right there the other day, that there shouldn't be, uh, basically, shouldn't be politics. And I was when I was listening to Tom Osborne, I was listening to Siobhan Cody, one, how wonderful health care, what they're doing for it, and uh, how the, the PCs cut, cut the health care, which really is so frustrating because... I mean, when they were here, they are in in power, and since they got in power, I mean, when, first when they got in power, I mean, we had our health care really in good shape. I mean, when the PCs took back, when they took back in 2003, when they took over, I mean, we were in the same situation. We're four years for heart surgery, two and a half years for knee surgery, and you go on and on, and you got uh, four years uh, for heart surgery in 2003. Like, no, when they took over, yeah, and then you got uh, oh. the 
hired a hundred. They hired, and when they were going on, they, kept, they hired 160, 180 doctors, that's psychiatrists, psychologists, general practitioners, and surgeons. We had, we went down and we, with nurses, as they were graduating, they got, they got a job. And we, we never had this problem with nurses. We never had clinics closed down. We never had hospitals. But with the emergence, most of the time when you get emergencies, either two or three of them shut down. During the week, we had wit burnout. There was, I think they were shut down for nine months. I mean, you just go on and on. We got with Ireland's call, we shut down pretty much. You got a doctor out there probably one or two times a week now. I mean, it just goes on and on with the mess we're in. I mean, I have never, no matter what government was in there before, I never seen the people pass away the lack of doctor like we got now. We have going on 200,000 people to a doctor. I mean, I have never seen the like before. 200,000? I mean, Not even the, N- the NLMA uses that number. Well, I ran 150,000, so you're working up towards. That was the last time I was out. So, I mean, you got going on 200,000 people. I mean, you go everywhere you go, so nobody got a doctor. I mean, this is, and then they blame PCs for cutting. I mean, we never had trouble. We got hundreds of nurses quit because of the lack, basically, of this disvalued, like everybody else, devalued. I mean, you got psychiatrists, psychologists, I mean, doctors, everybody's leaving, nurses. I mean, there were psychologists on there, I think it was last year. We talked about this before, who she said, they're constantly leaving the problems, and every year they're going more leaving because they're overworked and devalued. And everywhere, I mean, people talk to you, you see it on NTV News, and wherever you heard, I mean, and Tom was on the head of recruiting people. Recruiting people by, if they had to employ, pay the people we got in healthcare now, we wouldn't have this problem. I mean, you got graduate people graduating, not getting offers, doctors, it's like, you know, everyone. You got, you got respiratory therapists. You got radiation therapists who are getting ten dollars less an hour, and that's the way they are. They're underpaid. I mean, the nurses are underpaid. Same thing, overworked. You got emergency beds that are not they're closed because we got no staff to open them. I mean, this is everything is going on like this. And then Tom is always talking about virtual care, and he's talking about how he's going to have a surgeon task force to go around and have surgery, so it cut down wait time. Where are you going to get the doctors to? We don't have none now. Like, this is what gets me with all of this and how wonderful they're doing. There's more doctors. The, this is what confuses me, though. There's more doctors working in the province than ever before. So I can't square that circle. If that's the truth, then we don't really know where the doctors are working. Do they have a full patient roster? Are they doing straight research? Or, so there's a lot of disconnects inside here with the numbers of people working, and yet the, the wait time issues and emergency room capacities and all the rest of it. So I, mean, I don't know what the answer is. And the way that people feel, and this has been quite clear, whether you talk to the nurses' union or what have you, it's not all simply about money. People are burnt out. And I don't know if that's a political issue as, as uh, much as it is an operational issue, but we got to get health care right. And again, I don't care who has the idea, if it's going to work, if it's going to bring more uh, professionals into the fold and ease some of the worries and ease some of the wait times, I'm all in. Last words go to you, Tony. Yeah, I don't, to me, the same feeling. I don't care who is in there as long as the people is looked after. I mean, I haven't had a doctor. I know so many people who don't have a doctor in almost two years. And, I mean, again, like, no matter who is in there as long as there are heaps of doctors that meanwhile are saying they're, they're paying up more money, but yet we got half the service. And like you said, they're burnt out and they're, under, and they're underpaid and overworked. And a lot of it is not about money. It's about respect. And the fact of the matter is that they're burnt out. So, I mean, just they're going to have to get it right because if they don't, I mean, it's going to keep, it's keeping on getting worse. I appreciate the call, Tony. Have a nice weekend. Have a-
You too. Okay, buddy. All the best. Bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, how you doing today, buddy? Doing Happy okay. Friday. Thank you. Same to you. Good stuff. Uh, I'm calling from Ontario, actually. Listen uh, to you talking to the industry minister. Is that right? uh, what was his name? Uh, Andrew Parsons. <laughs> Andrew Parsons. Okay, I hope he's still listening because uh, I know look, I still follow the news down east, and why wouldn't I? I'm a Newfoundlander, Labradorian. But uh, he, these talks with, that are going on with uh, Quebec right now in regards to the future of contract with Churchill Falls. Yep. Okay. Uh, my my point, I guess, is you know my father worked on that site for 15 years back in the 70s, and he was proud of the work that he did, but he certainly wasn't proud of the fact that we gave it away. And I'm pretty sure that whole generation felt exactly the same way. So uh, I just hope he's still listening because any agreement, as far as I'm concerned, that goes on with Quebec going forward on Churchill Falls. First things first should be a compensation to province of Newfoundland Labrador for lost prosperity and economic growth. And I'm talking billions, okay? That's just my point here, Andrew. And we should be paid out first, compensated for loss of revenue and, and growth and prosperity. And then when we start talking about this contract or this agreement, full disclosure to the public, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, so people can vote on it, either yes or no, going forward and what's good for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Referendums are a funny way to do business, but uh, that's part of the confusion for some. And I, look, I'm going to guess that the negotiations are all of that included. It would be looking back to the $28 billion that has flowed to the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec versus the $3 billion for us with the lack of an escal escalator scale. So redress is 100% part of this. Whether or not we're ever going to get a satisfactory number, I don't know. But no doubt they're, they're talking Talking about that, and then it's you know between now and forty one, and then post forty one. So I guess all three, you know, I would imagine I a bit of common sense so. says. I certainly hope so. Whatever government's going to be in power in Newfoundland when this thing comes forward, the bottom line, from my view, and I'm pretty sure everybody on that island, on that province, we want compensation first before we even talk about any type of agreement. That's just the way, that's just my stand on it, and that's the way it should be because they abused us for years. And now, with all this electrification going on, Quebec's in a crunch, and they're going to need electricity because they're putting in these EV plants and everything else throughout Quebec, and they're in a crunch. So we got them. We got them by the tinies now, and we have to use it to our advantage going forward for prosperity of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So Newfoundlanders and Labradorians won't have to leave Newfoundland and provide their resourcefulness to other provinces so they benefit. We can stay right at home where it belongs. So it can grow the, pro the province of, of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's just my view. It'll and and I, I got another comment. I hope he's still listening. Because I heard him say something about opposition criticizing some kind of policies that he was talking about. Mm -hmm. The last time I checked, when you have an opposition government, that's their job. Their job is to criticize the governing government. Their job is to expose what they feel is not right. Because not everybody voted for a liberal government. So it's their job to do that, Mr. Mr. Parsons. Yeah. So you know. That's how it operates. I think his point was is that regardless of what this eventual deal looks like, it'll be criticized, and that's probably true, but you're right. The opposition parties have a crucial role in democracy to hold government to account, to ask the questions. And yes, sometimes there's criticizing for the sake of, but that's just the nature of the beast. That's how it works. Uh, I'm not so sure how much all of this has to do with Parsons, but what I will take another stab at, or I guess at, is the Fury government and the 
Trudeau government will still be in place when this deal is announced. Because we're not going to the polls anytime really, really soon. And so this deal has got to be close to being settled because all sides need it to be done. So I'm going to guess that the governments provincially and federally will still be the same people in place when we finally find out what goes on here. Well, I hopefully certainly I certainly hope you're wrong about that one, Patty, because if they plan to do that, they need to open up their books right now and let the people of Newfoundland and Labrador know what the heck they're doing in regards to spending these agreements. They need full disclosure right now, Fury. And Parsons, full disclosure, so people in the province know if you're going to sign that before the next election, that's just ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. Anyways, uh, I just okay. want to make one more comment about this uh, wind farm scenario. Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, Patty, okay, I used to do a little bit of hunting out just uh, west of uh, in Allison up here in Ontario, and they got wind farms out there, okay? And I tell you, you don't want one of those in your backyard because when you step out your front door, You'll never view your street or the view on your on your block ever again. Because as soon as you walk out your door, that's all you see is that thing turning. That's it. it dri- it'll drive you insane. And also, there was an ad in the Post this morning over in Europe right now. There's a, there's a town over in Germany that are actually canceling the wind farm because it's not producing enough energy. And they're going to open a coal mine. So, yeah, you need to do more homework. And that those protesters that are protesting that wind farm, good for you. I hope you're listening. Keep it up. Because there is a lot of in-depth knowledge that needs to be found out about this stuff. I appreciate the call all the way from Ontario. John, thanks a lot. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Okay, Ben. All right, bye-bye. Now it's the final break of the morning. And when we come back, John Harris is in the queue. Of course, he's the Director of External Affairs at Munsu. That's Memorial University Student Union. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Monsu. That's John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it going? Best kind. How about you? Doing great. So I'm just calling in to talk about our day of action that's coming up next Wednesday at 11 a.m. And I want to invite all of your listeners uh, that care about Memorial and its place in the province to come join us. Uh, I think we tend to forget why we have a public university in the first place. And I think the, the administration and the government uh, forgets the mandate of Memorial University, which is to provide uh, accessible education for young people of this province. And uh, I'm sad to say that uh, many students are being priced out. Uh, so that's our big concern is we, we want everybody to be able to get in a post-secondary education that wants it, that wants to level up, uh, even in the mature students. Any young person, anybody looking to get post-secondary education in this province should be able to do it affordably and not have to go into mountains of debt. Uh, so that's that's why we're taken to the Confederation Building at uh, 11 a.m. next Wednesday uh, to to protest the cuts to education. So, you know, given the Auditor General's work at Memorial University, I wonder if we're going to be able to find that $68 million that the government withholds over five years, which directly related to the doubling of tuition. I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to be able to find that amount of money and whether or not it's funneled into tuition control or what have you. But without question, the bloat and the mismanagement and the outdated or non-existent policies and oversight and monitoring at one, I think we're going to find some savings. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think that the the, the uh, administration of the universities 
uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction to the $68.4 million cut was to immediately put it on the backs of students to, to double our tuition. I, I think that was a very short-sighted uh, approach. I think that there definitely is room for some savings. I mean, I, I don't know if we'll see $68.4 million savings, but I think at the end of the day, the government and the uh, administration of the university need to stop putting – uh, students last. Uh, they need to get together and decide uh, a way forward that's transparent, that's more accountable, uh, that doesn't have as much waste of the public and students' money, and and find out how to find that savings so that students aren't uh, hit with the highest tuition this province has ever seen uh, and the highest uh, uh, cost of living this province has ever seen. I think that this is, uh, you know, at the same time of trying to pay for rent and food uh, and uh, transportation, the students are also being hit with uh, uh, going into debt or, or, or uh, having to spend uh, way more on education. So, I think this is this is really a time to make those changes. I think that now that it's all out in the open with the AG report, I, I think it's a, a, a good path forward uh, to fix this problem for students. Yeah, we'll see. I think we kind of mishandled it over the years, to be honest with you. We arrived at a very predictable point, unfortunately so. Uh, John, so what's the uh, times? Give us some of the details with the gathering or the protest tomorrow. So it's going to be at 11 a.m. at the clock tower. Uh, and then we're going to march to the Confederation Building uh, through the parkway. We'll have some speeches uh, at the Confederation Building. We'd love to, to see anybody that, that cares about moral, any, any parents, any uh, students, of course, any future students. And uh, we'll come say the, the importance of access to education uh, at the House of Assembly. I appreciate the time. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good one. You too, man. Bye-bye. That's John Harris. He's the uh, Director of External Affairs at Memorial University Students' Union. We learned a lot from Denise Hanrahan, the province's Auditor General's report looking into and the audit of operations at Memorial University. We did indeed have follow-up with the uh, President, Dr. Neil Bowes, about some of the changes that have been made since the end of the time fr- frame that was used by uh, the AG to look at MON. So hopefully some positive changes coming. The Auditor General is also wrapping up some work now, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. I really appreciate the work that that office does. We all should. In looking at oil coal, and of course, it was always interesting back in the day when the oil and gas division of Nalcor at the time was splintered out as a standalone entity. And so now Nalcor is no more. We have Newfoundland Labrador Hydro and the oil coal. So the AG is looking at oil coal at the moment. Also, and importantly, the Auditor General is looking at Crown Lands. There's really no way to understand why the government is so resistant to deal with real sweeping changes to the Crown Lands issue. It's impacting a ton of folks. So it's not just simply about reverting back to 76, and it's not simply about the length of time and frustration and cost associated with trying to deal with the Crown Lands matter. It just makes sense. What we're doing now simply does not. Next up for the Auditor General, which is really hitting the crosshairs of some of the big issues of the day, It's looking at housing. So early days, trying to come up with the scope and actual objective of what they're trying to accomplish by looking into Newfoundland Labrador housing and the management of the housing supply or the housing stock. So inside of all of those, there's massive information to be gleaned. But then what comes down to, I guess, the brass tacks in this case is when we find out what we find out, where do we find the so-called accountability? You know, it's fine to say, here, I've identified a problem, but do we ever arrive at a point where we say, here's the problem, 
We've identified it. Here's when it began. Here's who were the leadership uh, responsible at the time. Then what? Because it's not necessarily about people simply want their pound of flesh, but we need to know that people in senior positions that have not followed through with their mandate and or their duties in any sort of professional standards as identified by the AG, it's the then what? Because we don't get a whole lot of that. I thought it was I thought it was good form for the university to follow up pretty quickly on this program with Dr. Bowes. We had an extended conversation. But then when you look at things like oil coal, Crown Lands, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, there are going to be, obviously, and you don't need a crystal ball to think that we're going to find out a significant number of compensation issues, oversight or lack thereof issues, and then it boils down to what what's next steps. You know, it's one thing to get a report for to garner headlines for a few days, to have an interview on this program, have some questions and question period at the House of Assembly, but then it's the meaningful and required changes from what we uh, come up with. And that will hold true for the seniors advocate and the child and youth advocate and the ombudsman and the citizens representative uh, Bradley Moss, who just came out with a pretty scathing report as well for families who have uh, children who are severe ill and what that means to them and the gaps in services therein so lots of work there final check on the twitter where vocm open line follows there our email address is openline at vocm.com and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on monday morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy weekend we'll talk on monday bye bye